Hey, what's up? Welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Hano. I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. Woo! All right, so a quick reminder that the Patreon page is up and running. There's some really exciting shit to go down this season in terms of bonus episodes. So I hope you check that out. Um, trailer drops tomorrow for what that would be. So that's great. So for this episode, we're going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 61st Academy Awards. That film is Pelle the Conqueror. In Danish, Pelle Erobreren. In Swedish, Pelle Erovreren. I'm not sure if I did it right. Sorry. The film is written and directed by Bill August. This was Denmark's second win and fifth nomination. So this film is about Lasse, a Swedish widow who travels with his young son, Pelle, in to, to Denmark <laughs> in the hopes of a better life. They get a job at a farm where they are regularly mistreated by their foreman and um, they're living in the barn. So Pelle goes to school where he is being discriminated for being an immigrant. Meanwhile, Lasse starts to like open his horizons and he starts dating a widow, but things don't go according to plan. So meanwhile, both of these men see their own plans and aspirations slowly diverging from one another. Um, it's a two and a half hour film. <laughs> it, there's a lot of things going on. <laughs> the summary is not enough. <laughs> but that's a quick summary of Fiddler the Conqueror. So our guest for this episode is from the Dominican Republic. He's a cinephile and Oscar completist. He's around Twitter a lot of times. So please welcome Ronaldo Souza. Hi! Hi! <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me finally and doing an episode. We've been talking for months now, so this is like a long time coming. So yeah, thank you for coming. And um, where can they find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter at rsantana2024. And I'm also, I also have a letterbox account, but that's like linked in my profile. So you can find it there. <laughs> yeah, and he watched like more than a thousand films last year so <laughs> you know the same <laughs> all right <laughs> oh my gosh i've only seen 312 well i have a lot of free time <laughs> yeah i mean i have this podcast all right anyway so whoo uh is i know you're an oscar completist you watch all the nominated performances is this the first time you've seen Pella the conqueror yes all right so great it's also my first time. Let's start with that. What are your first impressions of this film? It's a very heavy film. <laughs> and I watched it, like, uh, I, I watched all the nominees yesterday, like, back to back to back to back. And I saw this right after Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. <laughs> and that movie leaves you, in, uh, it, it makes you very happy, and it leaves you on a high. And then I watched this before going to sleep, and it's, it's just very upsetting at various points because you see upsetting like really? a lot of i don't know if that's the right word but like you see like this boy and his father like bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happens to them and like i that's my main problem with it because I don't have a problem with films being like serious or being dramatic, but I prefer it when there's like levity in between all the misery to make it more uh, enjoyable in a way. Like not, 
I don't know if enjoyable is the right word, but to make it an easier watch. Huh. That word, I mean, your description of the film really struck me because, um, honestly speaking, when I was watching the film, I'm taking notes, I'm taking down notes, and I usually don't understand half of my notes <laughs> because I was writing so fast. I'm like, oh, shucks. Um, I thought the film was very digestible. Like, it's easy to watch despite first of all yes there are lots of like uh, misfortunes that Lassa and Pella are facing I mean but it was my instinct to write about to write more about the themes of the film rather than the film itself because I do think the film works really well in the sense that it's of course, the runtime was intimidating. And when you're scheduling things, <laughs> two and a half hours, like, Ugh. but I do feel that the film was made to be this thing that's watchable for everyone. I don't think it really... Um, I don't think it really doubles down on the ugliness of the situation. So, and I do think there was levity in between because you have these side characters that are giving this um, color or texture at least to the tone of the film. But I kind of agree with what you said that um, there are really moments here that are hard to shake. And it's a tough life. I uh, I agree with you that it's not like a heavy film that you, that it's very digestible to watch. But I uh, I just found it very dry. Like even the moments that uh, that are supposed to be levit- uh, levity, the levity in between, like they're really like the color palette is very gray mm-hmm. and blue, and it, it's kind of very depressing to watch. And even the moments that are more light are like very muted Mm -hmm. like there's that scene when Pele goes out and he finds the boy that he was friends with the runaway and they're like playing but it's really short and you don't even get to see them Mm -hmm. talking later yeah um I do think this that is the thing that kind of conflicts me Sometimes when I'm thinking about the film, because when I watch the film, like in the moment, I'm like, oh yeah. But thinking about it, it's 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 as if uh, it's as if the film wants to be sentimental, and how it tackles this issue, it tackles the story. I mean, but at the same time, it's not as emotionally immersive as it could be. I feel like there. Um, it wants to maintain this uh, muted beauty, if you may. Like, it kind of in an arm's length, which um, I understand sometimes, like, you know, um, there are certain filmmakers which clashing aesthetic choices, like, actually serve the film. This one, I feel like it's very sophisticated, very clean, even. Very... um, I don't think uh, it's dirty enough, if that's the right word. I don't think it's going, it's sinking its teeth deep into 
the poverty, and I'm not asking for poverty porn. It's just that it still feels not maybe not maybe sanitized or romanticized that I'm not really fully understanding on a more visceral level that how hard it is because I do think the two leads are great. I just want to say that right now. I want to say their names. For, of course, back... Such as Maximum Sidor. Yep. And um, the kid, Pele Vinegard. And from what I read, he was named after the the character because it's like a really famous book in Denmark yeah. and or in Sweden. Yeah. I don't know. And I do think these two leads uh, give the emotional weight of the film. But the filmmaking itself, I think, I don't know. Of course, I'm not Danish. I'm not a Danish girl. But um, I don't know if it's reverence to the material or... But there is this unwillingness to go tread. It feels safe. I think that's what I was going for. It feels really safe, which is fine. But at some point, safe doesn't leave a huge impact on you. And if you sat through a two and a half hour film and that leaves minimal impact, I might kind of question like, well, what happened between the two and a half hours? Because it felt good at the time. It felt involved. I did. I, I never not cared about it. But at the same time, that approach to the story and the way it was presented doesn't leave much impact. Yeah, because there were like two ways that they could have done the film. They could have done it like really dark and gritty and like uh, leaning on the realism and showing like how hard the life living in this farm is and like the discrimination that they face from, from being foreigners. Or they could have done like a really sentimental story that had emo uh, more emotional impact and that was more sanitized. And what uh, it tries to do is like make a balance of both. And I don't think that it really works because then it, it doesn't feel like it has uh, as much impact as it would have if it, were, if, if, if it was more gritty. And then like that coldness that it has from from being from trying to be gritty is taking away from the emotional impact that it could have if it was more sentimental. Yeah, and I can't agree with that because I think there are moments where it suddenly becomes <laughs> I don't know if gritty means shaky camera, <laughs> but um <laughs> there are moments in the film where it lets go of that stately uh prima proper filmmaking and I feel, oh, I, I, I want to see this. I want, I mean, of course, not always. It's, I feel like it's to say this. But for example, um, the scene where Pele was tricked and then he was locked inside the, the barn and then suddenly he was stripped down and was being whipped. There are some elements right there like, oh, you know, it, 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 it's going there in that direction. This is great stuff because it's not shying away from that that um, ugly side of the experience, which I think the the film is really going for. 
um, at certain points. But it, it holds back in certain places. Uh, also, I remember... Um, I love this scene. I think we're gonna jump ahead a bit, but um, the scene where suddenly there's so much um, commotion in the the bar in the in the place, and I'm like, what's going on? And then we just follow Pele as they go to the house of the master, and as it turns out, he was castrated by his wife. By his wife. And it's just such a jump and a jump in energy in the filmmaking, like. I want that. That's involving. That's in. That's intense. That is what really made. That, I mean, it's such a kind of a tangential moment because it's it's not really a, the film is not really about that character, but it felt such a peak in terms of my involvement with the story. I miss those moments with this film. And I already knew about that scene before watching it because I told a friend of mine that I was gonna watch Public Encore. And the first thing that she told me was like, oh, what did what she, she told me about that scene where his wife castrates her. And then everyone is acting like it's a normal thing because no one like reacts. Yeah. No one has like a big reaction to it. It's just like another day in the yeah. form. And I love like while the husband was really agonizing, the wife is just like sitting calmly in his bed of bed like, yep, I did that. <laughs> um, you deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> You've been spreading semen probably he had it coming he had it coming <laughs> um yeah but those moments i think just jolt to the energy of the film because otherwise it's all good you know it's kind of laid back sometimes which that's also the thing that that made, 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 made makes me think is that i didn't mind the, the extended runtime but at the same time I don't know if I really, if the impact of the story was really maximized because of that choice that we've been talking about a while ago, that um, there is this um, tendency to restrain itself to a fault and not really go into the, um, I think, the juicier parts of the story, the emotional journey, because truthfully... The film doesn't really have this, like overarching, like solid three act structure. I think it's just like, be with them, with Lesse and Pele, and you stick with them. And I would have loved more emotional engagement with them, and I would have had that if the film hasn't really pulled back that much, in a lot of ways. And I think that nah, what you were talking about about it not having enough clear three-act structure comes mostly because I read that the novel that it's based on has four uh, four volumes and it's like at various points of Bella's life and the the film is only based on the first one that was uh, that was called Boyhood and maybe that maybe the the whole thing would have been a more satisfying story but it's only based on the first one, so it kind of feels incomplete at the end. And I like, uh, um, and I, uh, this one is mostly about like him learning that he uh, to live fa- to live on his own and not live for his father's dream of being. Because let's, uh, 
Lassa for most of the film is just looking for a wife, but he doesn't really want a wife. He just wants a servant to take care of him because he's old and and the film, like the arc of the film, is Pella realizing that he has to get out and be on his own again and leave on the world and see the world on his own. But that's like the first act of the whole story. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I know that it was, I, I knew that the, the film was based on a part of the novel. I did not know that it was a volume just a part like um, a volume of like four parts um and how long would that film be uh, <laughs> uh it'd be a mini like, series and uh talking about film and tv but anyway um for some reason i of course this is not intentional that you know they saw what's going to happen in the next in 2016 to 2020. But I think what I like about this film is that it, for some reason, I mean, for some reason, it really mirrors the layers of the immigrant experience. It's not complete, definitely. Like we've been saying, that there's something restrained, um, muted, but sugar coated at the same time with this film. But it wor- I think it works enough as a documentation of the immigrant experience, you know, from from hateful rhetoric to actual hate, um, physical uh, uh, physical attacks. It gets that, and then also like looking, you know, the immigrant experience of looking back and looking forward and what's happening in the present. I mean, uh, they came from Sweden, they went to Denmark, and then uh, for for Lesser, that's it. But um, with Pele, who has conversations with Eric, right? Eric, uh, the the uh, one of the people in the farm, which kind of planted the seed to Pele to to even go further. I mean, he would go. He wants to go to United America, America. and uh, China and. Um, Quote unquote Negro, Negro land. land. I just want to say that the word was Negro <laughs> land, and I searched uh, that, and it's it's a very it's it's a place in like West Africa when it was still not very defined by geography, so they just called it Negro land. Just... Yeah, and it wasn't very explored. That's why I just called the entire thing Negro land. Um, anyway, <laughs> that seed of Eric being, Eric is already kind of like in the obedient servants. He was already the black sheep, you know, that the one that is willing to go against authority. And I think he conveyed to Pele that notion of going against and being comfortable with it and not being afraid to explore. Um, and his relationship, that relationship between Eric Eric and Pella, that's something that fascinates me, even though the film didn't really go as deep as it could. I mean, I don't think the film really went that deep and anywhere. But it's a fascinating no. aspect of him. Yeah, and like his relationship with Eric is what propels him to leave in the end. Because uh, after uh, 
after, well, as you said, uh, Lassa starts having an affair with a, with a married woman whose husband left on a boat many years ago. Oh, everyone thinks he's dead already, but she's still married and Lassa starts having an affair with her. And then uh, uh, right off as they're about to move in with her, like her husband com comes back and like everyone and all the kids in school start making fun of of Bella and start bullying him like his uh, what is it that they tell him like that he's gonna be the concubine concubine of, yeah of Mrs. Olsen <laughs> and then they talk to and then he fights with one of the kids of the school that's like the the son of the, the priest of the priest that's the one teaching in school Or is it like the owner? I don't know. Yeah, Pele attacked the priest's son because he was whispering some nasty things. Yeah, and then he and Lassa go to the to the to the yeah. lady of the of yeah. the farm. Mrs. Kongstrup. After she already, yeah, after she already castrated her husband, and he's there lying down recovering. I mean, good for her. I mean, oh my god, I would. Yeah. I would have loved to have that courage. Like, yeah, she would be like a promising old woman to just like go after <laughs> these men, castrate sticks of like men who. Anyway, um, that's a very 2020. Yeah, and then they. <laughs> <laughs> and then they tell her about what happened, and she offers Pella a yeah. job doing uh, being like the trainee. Yeah, because the trainee was first trainee. held by the the one who bullied Pella. But now since that trainee's shift is over, he is now uh, promoting Pella to be the trainee in the farm. Yeah, and the trainee is like uh, a, a, a young kid that's like learning from the manager to be a manager later, right? And then like he offers him a job, uh, she offers him the job as trainee. And he's considering taking it and he's like filling his costume and then he says that they take Eric away and that's like what solidifies in his mind that he has to leave this place and he's going with Lassa with his dad at the beginning but then Lassa realizes that he's too old to travel and he decides to stay and send his son yeah. too his old own. and too young what a combination Um, that has been yeah. That's an actual line from the film. Too old and too young. So, uh, yeah, it is quite. There are a lot of interesting things around, uh, this film. Like also, I think one of the films, one of the films, one of the themes of this film is really about being the out about the outcasts. I mean, they're immigrants who come in and they're not really welcome, and then you also get someone like uh, how do you say, Hood, <laughs> Hood. I don't know. <laughs> um, the son of this angry woman who is actually, um, he is the son of Kongstrup. And then yep. you also see yeah, an, illegitimate, an child. illegitimate child. And then you also have this random woman who falls in love with the son of the rich person. Uh, and then you also have Lessa who is a widow. And then um, the, the woman who is Mrs. Olsen? Is it Mrs. Olsen? I, I forgot. Um, yeah. Olsen, yeah. A widow as well. Oh, oh no, 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 no. Lessa is a widower. Everyone thinks she's yeah, a widow. 
So they're all sidelined. I don't know. There's something endearing about it, even though their journeys aren't really that well, like, um, deeply explored. There's something endearing about this film, um, really focusing on those outcasts and showing how actually they forge connections within themselves, um, mostly through Pele, <laughs> definitely. Um, and then we also see Pele. All right, I want to hear your thoughts on this because we talked about how Sophia Loren for you is supporting in the life ahead. This oh, yeah. film, that relationship between Lesa and Pella really reminded me of uh, Madame Rosa and uh, I forgot the name of the kid from the life ahead. Oh my god, Ibrahima, Ibrahima, something. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> of the kid in the life ahead. Um, yeah. So, do you apply the same thing here? That do you, what do you think of Max von Sydow in lead actor? I'm just gonna jump into like Oscar thing here because what? First of all, I what do you actually yeah, gonna First of all, do you think what do you think of his performance? Second, is he in the right category? First, I think that he's really good. I love Max von Sydow. I uh, I love all the work that he did from uh, with Ingmar Bergman in like in the sixties and early seventies. I think that's the main reason why he was nominated <laughs> because he was already known and he had made like all the films with uh, with Bergman and he also had been in a Best Picture nominee at this point because he was in the in the Emigrants. I have seen none of those, and I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you should watch Shame. I will. You know, as we go back in time. Uh, and I think it's really good. I really love, like, uh, that scene at the after the scene you mentioned where they take Pele into a barn and then they start whipping him in the butt. And then he comes, uh, like, Lassa comes, Maximusito. And he sees what's happening and he like wants to do something, but he's also like scared. So he stays away. And then after the uh, after the guy that was whipping his son goes away, that's when he yeah. comes in. A lot of weighing in and then, in that moment. Because he knows what he is at yeah. that place. Mm-hmm. And he knows what would happen if he did something about it. And then this uh the scene later when his son is like crying in bed and he's telling her like, oh, I would have killed him. <laughs> like, I, I, I would have killed him if I, if I had been there and I'm going to kill him and I'm going to do this and that. And then the guy comes into the house and he goes outside and he starts like stuttering and doesn't even know what to say. And he, and he starts saying like, oh, like as a father, like I, I'm against what you did. And then he interrupts him and then he's like, oh, I'm sorry for the way my son behaved. <laughs> Like he has no, mm, no courage. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Uh, I think it's just I don't know. It's not really courage. I I think, hmm. You know, I think it's really courage that it's really courage. <laughs> it's really courageous. Shocks! Oh my gosh, my brain is not working. It's really courageous of him to take that and like you know um to take that in. Because he knows what that's what it's what is at stake, um, and I think that's just his way of processing his anger. 
uh, you know, uh, <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm going to kill him. And but Pele is like following up, like, what are you going to do to kill him? And I'm like, wow. <laughs> and Pele is the one really nudging uh, Lasse into this murderous spree. But then uh, Lasse uh, processes in a different way, which I'm sorry, but that resembles me when I process my anger. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to kill that person. But when I say that? Oh, hi. How are you doing? I'm just fine. No, I'm like that too. <laughs> I'm not very confrontational. My, I'm very confrontational in my head. But sometimes the anger <laughs> seeps in like days after. And um, until... Because, you know, in law... I don't know in laws. Wow, we're talking about laws. Um, I think there are laws <laughs> where like it's... it's They give you like... Um, Allowance, for example, you punched a person because you were really angry at the time. You know, that emotional, in-the-moment element. But when it's days after and you still punch the person, you're, you don't have a case anymore. And I'm like, I really want to... I've told some of my friends, like, you know what? I, I wanted to punch you when we were in school, but the anger came in, like, days after. And, like, it's no longer applicable. So the same thing with Pella... Uh, with Pella... With, this title is confusing me. My gosh. Uh, this uh, lesser, his way of dealing with anger and how how he deals with his emotions, actually, not just anger, and how he deals with romance, with love, uh, is all in connection to this socioeconomic experience that they have. And I think that is true. Of the immigrant experience elsewhere, where even if they certain immigrants like they go in th- go through some mis- injustice and like they know they were done wrong, but they know they are immigrants. They can do anything, can do anything about, about it. it. I mean, let's talk about America, but <laughs> well, at least Lassa knows. Yeah, Lassa knows. Tell us still thinks that he can do yeah, something. He knows. Um. Yeah, which I do also love that uh, that moment. Another, you know, okay. Another, I'm really messy here right now. I also loved what Max von Sydow was doing here. It is very contrary to what uh, the Academy usually goes for in Best Actor because it is a very sensitive, yeah. internal, quiet performance, which I hope we see with Steven Yeun in Minari, but I don't know if that's... Yes. That's the... Oh! <laughs> That's the hurdle, but if there's any precedent, this is it. I think Max von Sydow and um, uh, Pella the Conqueror. And same thing with um, Sophia Loren, because I don't think she really had big, big, big moments. But it's the... No, like the, her only kind of big moment is that one when she the, when it's <gasps> raining and she's on the roof and and she's like looking out and having... Like, Paralysis. She's like comatose. Yeah. No, catatonic. Yeah, catatonic, catatonic that is one of the most heartbreaking sights I've ever seen in film this last year. Um, but also, like I said, Stephen Yeun. You know, I think with Minari. 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 Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Minari, where when you see the film, the film really follows more the kid than the father. Yeah. So I want to, yeah. No, but in that. In, in Minari, I think it's more equal between both. Like in Pella, 
it's very much more the kid's point of view than the than the father. I really wish Screen Time Central could do Minari, <laughs> like see what's happening. <laughs> no, I th- I think they'll yeah. do that. I, I think, think they'll do that uh, later when Nick comes on. Yeah. Um. So I want to ask you though, kind of like, all right, Sophia Lauren, Max von Sydow, Sophia Lauren in the Life Ahead, Max von Sydow in Pelé the Conqueror, Steven Yeun in Minari. One by one, do you think they're lead or do you think they're supporting? I think that Sophia and Max are supporting. And I see Steven Yeun as a lead. Because I think that he has more scenes on his own. Like you see him like working in the uh in the plantation. And like you he has more point of view scenes. Like the uh, Sophia Loren and Max Monsido don't has, oh, like Max Monsido only has one scene that his kid is not in, and that's when he meets Mrs. Olsen and he's like asking her but not asking her to marry him. When he's like, oh, and I, like I have to good hands and I can work and I want someone to give me coffee by my bed in the morning on Sunday. I think Sophia Loren has a very few. By herself, see. Oh my gosh. Or I don't know. I can't remember. But I mean, you could say the same thing with Jennifer Lawrence. With Silver Linings Playbook. In what? Rarely no. does she have her own scene. Yeah, but. Anyway, next but... different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. I promise we're going back not to Bella the Conqueror. <laughs> and it's not. And and I not I don't really like I don't really mind category fraud when it's like a supporting performance being yeah. in lead. It's when it's the yeah. other way that's unfair. Yeah, because sometimes you can feel like, yeah, but have you seen it? <laughs> like even when you go to like screen time, like, <laughs> oh, she's just there for like twenty minutes. But have you seen those twenty minutes? <laughs> like anyway, uh, yeah, going back to this film that we're talking about. Is it a manifestation of how we're not that interested in the film that we go to other topics? But uh, I do want to say that um, there. What do you think of that love story um, between one of the workers and the son of this rich person? It's not very well developed at all. Like you see the first scene when they meet and they talk, kind of, and then you see her again and she's pregnant. Unless they forgot like something in between, but then you see Pella like running and going into a barn, and she's pregnant and hiding because she doesn't want people to find out. And then when you see her again, like she she already had the kid, and the guy killed them. Yeah, I think I remember it being like they they saw each other in the well, and then the next one, the girl was trying to visit him after church. And then the second one is, the third one is, um, they met in the farm in snow, but it was a very long shot that you don't even, it's not even the focus of it. And then the following scene, you see her and she's already like, months. She's coming to term. Months pregnant. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, she's almost given birth. And I don't mind, like, um, side characters. I really don't, but. I think the film is very clearly about Pele and the people around him. Most especially Pele and uh, 
uh, Lessa, but not just them exclusively. That story has very little to do with Pele. Yeah, I feel like he could have been cut out and nothing would have changed. That's, that's what I really. thought. Because then, like, she had the baby and the guy drowns it in the river. And she goes to jail for killing her baby when it wasn't her. And then nothing happened. Yeah, that's 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 where this, that storyline stops. Yeah, which yeah. is like... Yeah, and I don't know if maybe that comes back into play, like in the on the other volumes of the book, but I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a confounding one because for some reason the film really takes time in those moments, and that's not really well developed, and then suddenly it shows this really impactful image of a baby on the riverbed, dead, and it's like you don't throw away that imagery. Without any like build up or like setup, that is from a poorly developed storyline, and then you put that imagery and then you resolve it easily. Uh, she goes to jail, which, which I understood because you know patriarchy sucks. But this scene mm-hmm. with Pele and the father doesn't really go anywhere, <laughs> and it's not. For me, it's not bad. It's just unnecessary. unnecessary. And like, did we really have to spend time with that one? Um, I that I did not really fully. That really just puzzled me. I mean, aside from the fact that it showed the class divide, but it's already showing that with Pele and the superiors and and Lessa, the farmers. They're already showing that. It's a very, I don't know if there's some version of this where it's the some more scenes are cut, but even then, it doesn't have the emotional resonance that that makes it a required aspect of the film. It can really just fast forward it, and a lot of their scenes don't even matter. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just blunt, not even matter. And they have no impact on Pele himself. Because he isn't really friends with her. It's not like he knows her, yeah. really. And they just talk once when he says they're pregnant. And then he just goes about his day. Yeah, where um, he Palace sees the girl, the, the, the woman in the barn, and then helps her escape, like getting the beating. And then the next scene, Palace started talking to the man that impregnated her. Like, there isn't really an end point to this. And I don't really usually mind loose ends. It's just that I don't see the reason why this exists um, in the story. We've talked about how it really wasn't the most, the grittiest depiction of poverty or like um, that economic class. <laughs> that, I'm not there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm there. Uh, but what I also appreciate on the other hand is that it's, it's a double-edged thing is that it's not relishing in misery or not showing it as spectacle. I mean, the depiction of poverty in this film isn't the most uh, realistic or like impactful, but at the same time, this is where, yeah, yeah I understand. Be- it's better than misery. Yeah, porn. I understand the restraint. I don't know. The, the restraint works in some parts. In some parts, it doesn't. 
But it's um, I let it pass. Yes. And I I think that the way this handles, like the misery, it's much better than something like Beautiful, <laughs> the Inarito movie, because that movie is unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'll never have to see it again. I rewatched that for this podcast, and that first half <laughs> never gets easy. That first half never gets easy. I mean, I don't mind oily skin. I have oily skin, so. But oh my god! <laughs> anyway, th- that's in a 2010 episode. If you want to see that, for also for a Denmark winner, a Danish winner, that year in a better world. So yeah. if you want to check that episode. Anyway, uh, what else are to talk about in this film? Uh, a lot of religious subtext. And it the influence of religion in the story itself. What do you think of that? Well, I didn't really catch that. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, like the only thing that I remember is like uh, when... When that like that scene where Lassa is uh, reciting the, is it the evan the evangel? Gospel. I don't know that word in English. The gospels, yeah. And uh, but aside from that, I don't remember. <laughs> El Evangelio. Yeah. Uh, see, I just brought that up, but at the same time, I I don't know also the intention of the film, but at the same time, there is this martyr-like quality to Lassa. Um, which ultimately, when you're, it's juxtaposed to like religious imagery, it feels like the film is trying to say something about the religiosity of, especially Lessa. I think this one is really for Lessa. Um, oh, shucks. Um, I think of Christian ideology where. This is just me probably like inserting my own readings in this film. Uh, anyone who's listening, feel free to, to disagree with me. I think, of course, it's also from a novel, so I, I'm really just imposing my a religious knowledge from it. But I think Les uh, kind of reads like God the Father, which is like you know very you know it's not really um, in terms of the Christian. Um, Uh, dogma this uh, omnipresent uh, omnipresent character but when we talk about Christian dogma it's really the sun the the sun's um, journey here on earth and like letting him go by himself did I just made up my own (laughs) <laughs> my own um, assumptions of the film but yeah I mean it's just that I cannot I cannot let go of a possible religious subtext when the film has heavy imagery of it it feels deliberate but at the same time same time I can't really fully decode it next <laughs> um, what do you yeah no I just want to talk about something that I really didn't like about it and that's the score Okay, let's go and talk about that. Score. It's it's very overbearing. Like the in the first like the first scene of the movie after they get off the boat and they're trying to get work 
and everyone is telling him no because you're too old and you have a child and we don't want you and every time that someone rejects him like this really heavy like orchestral score like there to accentuate the 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 reject the rejection and it was unnecessary like it, uh, it was enough with just showing like they didn't have to I don't like when scores do that. Yeah, Max Ponsido is that good. <laughs> He's that good, really. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things where I don't think the film was practicing restraint, actually, because it, it has this big music that goes in a lot of the places in the film, uh, which for me kind of gave life, but at the same time, I understand that there are certain moments where it's just embellishing. And it's not really that crucial in the point of the scene. Um, I do want to say that... I think I've been saying I do want to say that a lot of times already. (laughs) I hate it. Um, I do want to mention (laughs) that um, the film... One of the things that it depicts is that... it Characters are always using the authorities as a threat. I'm going to call the authorities. You're an immigrant. I'm going to call the authorities. Blah, blah. I think this film highlights how in the larger scheme of things, really, and we can see it even now in our our world, authorities are really used against the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. I mean, I mean, when we talk about police brutality you don't really see police brutality to the rich you don't really see police brutality a lot of police brutality to the white to the white people that in uh, like the riots that happened recently in the capital yeah I mean like full of white people and the police was just there like pretty they, they, they let I them in the... yeah and didn't do anything and I later read that like some of the people that were there are like police officers from other states that were there. That's a that know, were off that duty. was a planned attack, and they're yeah. getting away with it because they're white. We could just say that now. And there's some stupid Filipinos who joined that, which I want to say is you're not white. Um. So yeah, that's just a weird yeah. And like the only thing, the only good thing about that is that even some Republican people are starting to turn around on Trump, because I know some people like my personal life who were Trump supporters, and even they were against that. They, that's that's the ticking point. Okay, like like days before he leaves. Okay, but you know we'll take that. <laughs> I oh. I'll tell that later. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so that's one of the points where, of course, the film was just, I don't know, maybe to use it in the story from the source material, but that resonated with me. Really, it did. And that's one of the more impactful um, takeaways I got from the film is that these people, these, these disenfranchised people are being threatened by authorities every single time. And that's just, that message just hit me hard. Um, even immigrants now, like non-white immigrants now, <laughs> make that clear. You know they're gonna call the ICE, call the police, call whatever. And 
I don't know. That's one of the more, that's the things that I, of course it has me, it has me, it has my own experience that is not in the film, but that message just resonated with me. And I don't even know if the film was intending to go hard on that message. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> oh, I also want to talk about the scene. Like the like my favorite scene of like probably what got Max Moncido his nomination. And it's like at the end when he's realizing that he can't go with his son and he, that he has to send him on his own and he's crying. Yeah, he was like, can't you stay <laughs> Like, can't that you was stay really... Here. That, I, I don't know if they had clips in, in 1988, but that must have been his Oscar clip. Yeah, you know what? When when we take a break, I will take a look at that clip. <laughs> I will find it on YouTube. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great scene. It's It's in the end. So that's the last thing you might remember for that for him. I mean, I think even would, I don't know what. All right, so imagining, kind of segueing, putting it into existence. Steven Yeun gets nominated for Minari. Have you seen it? Right, you've seen it, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you think would be his Oscar scene? That one is mm. tough, right? Yeah, because he doesn't really have a crying scene. Like, he has, like, the closest thing to that is when he and his wife are having the discussion outside the... When they just came out, when he's, like, pitching the guy to give him the... That he's going to sell him all the the vegetables. And then they come out, and he and his wife have, have the discussion. Like, maybe that's the closest to a crying scene that he had. I'm thinking of... When they were fighting. Or maybe, yeah, like the fights. Yeah, maybe that's it. I just want to say, Yeri Han, where's her buzz? Yeah, she's, she's great. I'm, I'm just crying thinking like, uh, about that film. <laughs> <laughs> I hate myself. We're supposed to talk it's about the Conqueror. But immediately. It's my second favorite of the year so far that I've seen. I don't think, I don't, in my personally, I don't even, I don't think, I don't, I don't even think it's there for me, but every time I think of that film, my heart just melts. But um, oh, let's go back to Sophia. Yeah. And that's a great score. Yeah, that's a great score and a hot composer. But anyway, um, um, I would really hate if that goes zero. That's the kind of film where it goes. I don't know. The way it's going, I think that Yoon Yoo Jung is in a, in a good position to get a nomination. Like, she's bad, She's in a better position than Zhao Zhujin was last year. Because at least uh, Yoon Yoo Jung is winning a lot of critics' awards. And that doesn't really mean anything, but it helps. Yeah. Um... And Zhao Zhujin won some last year, but it wasn't that big. Like, this year, it's like her and Maria Bakalova winning everything. But it's gonna be glim. Anyway, um, uh, how about Sophia Lord? What do you think her Oscar scene would be? Oh, maybe that that scene that we mentioned when when we're training and she's on the rooftop. But that would be kind of an atypical scene because that's yeah, and she doesn't have any dialogue in it. It's just but it's a horrifying moment. So yeah, and it would be better than that clip from Rami Malek. Oh, I, th- I think... <laughs> I think <laughs> <that>. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, that's the year of like 2018 was the year of like weird Oscar clips. I mean, they even chose like what a weird clip for Jalitza Parizio. I mean, that's already an atypical performance nominated for the Oscars and then yeah. they went that scene. But I would still pick that scene over lip syncing. Anyway, um, yeah. What is it? Anything else I want to say? What do you think of that title, Pele the Conqueror? I don't understand this. Like it makes it sound like it's an an adventure movie or, or or fantasy. Like before I even knew what the movie was about, like years ago when I first saw it, and I saw that Max Lucido was the lead. I thought that it was like a movie about him being like a knight. Yes. Or something. I thought he was a knight with. Because I remember metal... from the Seventh Seal. I thought there was something related to the Seventh Seal. I had to research this one. Um, I think this scene goes back to Pele's conversation with Eric. Or like conquering the world, the America, the China, the New World, and that him being a conqueror and his decision to leave the country and um, decision to leave the farm and actually go out on his own way. That's probably him conquering the world. Or I don't know... Um, any meaning to that what do you think of that decision of Pele and Lessa to split in the end I think it was the right choice because uh, I don't think that Lessa is a very good parent really yeah like uh like he's an alcoholic and he said that he was never gonna drink like that again but I don't believe that and I don't know I also don't know I was okay with that I think he's still processing the grief of being a widow and he's grappling with new environment um, thinking he probably fails his child living in this destitute life um, not even being able to protect him while he also has his own agenda of like, I'm getting older and I need someone in my life to serve me. But um, I, 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 I don't know if I'm just putting my own vi- vision of it. I kind of don't get why they have this. I mean, I think it Pele has it in him. To split in the future. Yeah. I don't think this age, this age, he would necessarily do it, or maybe I just didn't catch some things in the film. I I, I did not really fully buy that at this a time um point in time, he's leaving. I think he would leave somewhere in the future, not not now. Yeah, and I think that that's. Like another problem that I have with it is that I don't think that the the actor, like the kid actor, I don't think that he's great. Like he's bad, but I don't think that he sells that very well. And even in the end, where 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 he's splitting with his father, and Max Lucido is great in that scene, like he always is. But the kid, like you don't really feel the emotion from him there. Yeah, there. He has mo- other moments where I feel his emotions, 
um, more clearly. And I think that's a really good performance. So, uh, but that moment, I just did not know if it was was it in the build up in terms of like writing characterization that there, it's the this undeniable choice to leave for Pele or is it from the actor? That's one of the things that is kind of reconciled in my mind. Unreconciled. Um, speaking of Pele, there's a lot of child nudity in this film. <laughs> a yeah. lot of child nudity. <laughs> yes. If this film is like I, like I always say, I'm all for I'm all for male nudity, but I don't need to see children. <laughs> you know, I no for me. I actually kind of. But yeah. it's not like. Eh. No, you. I actually kind of like. No, I don't like child nudity. It's just that I like that how they use it. It's very matter of fact. Children get naked. Yeah, it's not like. Yeah, it's not. It's not drawing attention to it. I just don't know the actor's age at the time, or would that even matter? <laughs> But um, I like how they. I think it's very respectful still. I mean, now I think. When that film would be released now, I mean, talk about cuties being called child born. Um, oh yeah, and we, we have to talk about some, one of the other submissions later that also has child in it. Wait, wait, uh, yeah, probably. I'll catch it later. Um, I this one is very respectful. It's very matter of fact. It's in the story and how yeah. it was shot. Is he was thirteen years he old. He was thirteen. Yeah. yeah still minor but I think there is respect in the way it was done um, that's one of the cases where <laughs> oh no I don't want to say something that might be used against me but <laughs> it's I respect the choice of the filmmaker yeah, and it's and it's not that uncommon to see that outside of America Because I grew up watching anime and like in shows that are on TV, you see na naked children all the time in anime from before. Yeah, it it's really a case to case thing, and um, I don't know. People would disagree with me, but I don't know. Anyway, do you have any other scenes that you want to highlight from this film? No, I just want to mention again the castration. Okay, okay, the castration. <laughs> that was really fun. All right, I, I think you have some things to say about that scene. Go ahead. Mm, no, Nothing. I just <laughs> okay. Really <have> <laughs> I, I just wanted to mention that. You were that so adamant to bring that up again. Like, all right, he has some things to say, but um, yeah. <laughs> It's just a, a very memorable scene. Yeah, a, a remarkable scene on its own. Um. Very unlike the most of the film. Uh, <laughs> I liked the Christmas Eve scene where they uh, the foreman kicked Eric and then Eric started play started playing the accordion outside. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You see the small pleasures of these people in this kind of community, and then Pele jumping into the cold water. I think that's a very remarkable part of his journey when he's like being bullied to fitting in to standing up for himself it's one of those um uh turning points where he's really 
I don't know if he's being consumed by his environment or he's standing up. It's not clear. But I like that there is this... It's a character moment for him. Um, there's this one scene that's remarkable, I think, about with, with the money. Um, oh, food. oh, that's another scene. I should have mentioned Go that. Ahead. I don't... I don't understand like what is happening in that scene <laughs> because he has like a, a coin it's a silver coin and then I'm just gonna say Ruth because I don't know how to say it and then Ruth comes in and he says that if he that if, if he gives him that coin that he will let himself be lashed a hundred yeah. times and then Pella starts like hitting him really hard yeah for some reason was that before he is bullied or after? Uh, I think that's after. Then probably he's lashing, literally lashing out on <laughs> um, on Hood. But yeah, that's one of those scenes like, what, what? That comes out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. <laughs> um, also, another scene or out. Oh, that's where probably where my religious reading of the film comes out. In their scene where um, there's this recitation, religious religion recitation in class, and Pele is really aced that recitation, and then in that moment, uh, Les is behind him, like kind of like in uh, holding his arms, shoulders, and like kind of like being proud. I got a religious reading from that imagery in that scenario. Um, also. Cleaning my ears while talking to you, really. <laughs> um, the scene with the rescue operations, um, operation where there is these immigrants again who needed help, and there's this hateful rhetoric with um, within the farm. But then one of the rescuers, one of the rescuers, and then the, was actually the son of the rich guy, and that died. So there's this reckoning with him. I don't know what's the payoff, but <laughs> it exists. Um, what do you think of that scene when they attacked the foreman? Mm, I guess it's a payoff because it was set up earlier when the the girl that gets pregnant is like getting water from the well, and then the bucket goes, and the rock hits something. But. I don't know. I don't really have an opinion. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I do want to mention that it was really touching to see um, Les's date with Mrs. Olsen. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, Les has his own um, imperfections as a father, as we've talked about. You've mentioned, really. But it's one of those moments like, yes, I think like you deserve some rest because also one thing I don't know if this is Max Bonsedo's age I think he always looked old anyway um, yeah. that's why he now he looks he looks oh he didn't change because he already looked old even then uh, but there is this weariness with this character like a body language and I'm like there's something like even when he's angry you don't really see the threat because there's already this exhaustion in his body, which is like old age and poverty. And he's reflecting that physically. Uh, and then when he gets the scene, we're like, should we go to bed? Blah, blah. And I'm like, 
Yes. Get that. <laughs> you need that. You need to get that. <laughs> I'm happy for you. It, it, it's really, it's a touching moment when that's... And even for the woman, for Mrs. Olsen, because she's been without a husband for like five years yeah, already. unconfirmed. Like, imagine. <laughs> imagine not getting it for five years. But, um, yeah, I think Maximum Sido's performance also taps into certain loneliness. And that's one of those moments where I realized, oh, I haven't seen a lot of Maximum Sido in this film. I wish I saw more. Because in that sequence, I saw... I infer this history of longing because, you know, he was, he, we're talking about he's a widow and he's poor and he is, you know, he has been just dealing with things with life. That's a respite in his moment. And we didn't know if that's going to be like um a serious thing or was it going to a one night stand if they still do that at that age. But I think he earned it as a character. And that's one of those moments. I want to know him more. Yeah, I think he's a more interesting character than Pella himself. Sure. And I wish that the film was more focused on him or that it was more equal yeah. between them. Yeah. And then there's one last scene that I want to highlight is when Pele was going to be... I think he was going to run to Mrs. Olsen, but then suddenly he was bullied and being cornered in the sea. And he did this thing... Oh, yeah. Of, um step where he went on thin thin eyes broken eyes and he did it and i think it's one of those like physical representation of him overcoming odds like he is becoming the conqueror that he would be once he goes out in the bigger world let's say one thing that bothered me about that scene is like he goes out into the thin eyes and then comes back in at another point and then he just stays there and lets the other kids come to him. I haven't tried stepping Wait, on thin ice, so I don't know how it feels. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it was really cold because he fell on the water. Yeah. It must be freezing there. Yeah, that's also one of those scenes where I don't know, I don't understand the flow of the scene because the bullies were so adamant to like getting him. And then when they saw him go to the other side, they just went to him. And nothing happened. So I don't know the, yeah. the flow of that scene. Oh, and that's when when Mrs. Olsen's husband comes back. Oh yes, maybe. Uh, anyway, I. A lot of the things in the film, not don't necessarily glue. Together or cohere in a smooth way, but I would admit I didn't mind watching this. In the moment, I did not have a lot of complaints. Maybe maybe you do, but I didn't have a lot in the moment. Just thinking about it like, huh. I didn't hate it. I, it, it was I have fun. to clarify that. <laughs> I have to clarify it after one hour conversation. Yeah, we didn't hate it, but yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the film? Um. Well, Max Bonsaito is really good. And he's my runner-up in Best Actor that year. Who's your runner? Tom Hanks. I keep forgetting that he was nominated for Big. That's a... Yeah, that's a really inspired nomination. Yes. That's not something that the Academy really does very often. Oh, now I've seen... 
There's also uh, I've seen um, uh, Gene Hackman. So Mississippi, yeah, Mississippi Burning, the and the other two. I think uh, Dustin Hoffman, The Rain yeah. Man, and I don't know who the other is. Let me look. I was thinking who. What's the other nominee for actor? It must have been. Oh, Edward James Olmos for Stand and Deliver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I have also seen. And that's kind of relevant to this episode because it has parts in Spanish. Okay. <laughs> oh, that, this, you know what? This is one of those years where I felt like this could have easily gotten in, like, not, not talking about quality, but just because of the phase of the Oscars at the time. This is one of those times where I think William Hurt could have gotten in like easily for the accidental tourist. I mean, that got even a. Oh, I hate that movie. <laughs> not even got a best picture nomination. Yeah, for some reason, and Jane Davis won. Yeah. Um. Well, more on that later, but <laughs> yeah. So Max von Sydow would be a runner-up. Yeah. What do you think of his nomination for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close? I think he's the best thing about that movie, but I don't love that movie. I don't hate it like some people do, but I don't really like it. I know that it's your favorite from that year. Well, maybe after an separation. Yeah. I think for me, that's a very inspired nomination because even if you take out the film, it's, again, another reserved performance from him. Um... He's really a treasure of Scandinavian world cinema. So, But I, I also think that it feels kind of wrong that his first nomination didn't come from something that he did with Bergman. I mean, you can say that with a lot of legends that got it for the first time later in their career. Yeah, like Liv Ullman, like she had a nomination later for face, for face to Face, but her first nomination was for The Emigrants, after she had already done Persona and The Passion of Anna and Shame, which Max Monsido was up there too. And then she gets a nomination for The Emigrants. And I haven't seen that yet. But I imagine she's great. I love her. Yeah, um, I, have a, I haven't seen a lot of her yet, but I will <laughs> with the following seasons. I will. So, you have to see scenes from a marriage. Oh, it's TV. Oh no! <laughs> no, no, no. I might, I might, I might. I would, I, I, I hope to get around it. Um, somewhere down the line. But yeah.
All right, so we're back, <laughs> and we're gonna talk about how Pella the Conqueror won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. It premiered in Sweden in December 25, 1987, in Denmark December 26, and then it premiered on Denmark in December 13. It premiered at Cannes in 1988, where it won Palme d'Or. It premiered at New York Film Festival on September 30, and it was released in the United States in December 21. By Miramax. This was Denmark's second win and fifth nomination. It was also nominated for Max von Sydow, if you haven't heard that. We've been talking about it for an hour. Um, it won Golden Globe. It was nominated for BAFTA the following year. It was one of the top five of National Board of Review. And in the European Film Awards, it won Best Actor and Best Young Actor. In the United States, it grossed $2.1 million. Um, do you think it was an easy win for Pella the Conqueror? I think it was. Nah, first of all, like you mentioned, it was released by Miramax. And it, they weren't, like, the big thing yet. But I imagine that Harvey Weinstein still was doing his thing back then. And there was, there was also that it had a very famous actor in it. Like, Max Lucido was already a known presence. He had done The Exorcist. Already. Oh, yes, I forget. And for some I reason, forget. didn't get a nomination for that. I forgot if he was there. Shame on me. Um, yeah, I... I th Yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I was gonna say that, like, the... Max Lucido was, like, one of the main reasons that it won. Like, the love for him... And maybe getting him that overdue nomination and since it got that nomination like more people saw it because it was also nominated for acting so yeah it feels like an easy winner yeah i trust you on that one because you've seen more films in 1988 than i did <laughs> um <laughs> i do think yeah oh and it also feels like the most like the most important or the most serious of the old yes Except for maybe Hannison, but that's weird. Yes, I do agree with that. I think this is actually this is a um, it feels you know it also has a palm door with it, uh, kind of raises its profile, um, but yeah, it feels the most traditionally in this category would get, you know, and uh, we'll explore why yeah. in this category that would emerge as the go to choice. Um, so I would run down the nominees. Here are the nominees for Best for a Language Film. Hannesen from Hungary. The Music Teacher from Belgium. Salah Mumbai from India. And Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown from Spain. I really want to... Wait, wait, wait. Um, is it? Mujeres al Borde en los at that title is already irresistible. Anyway, I want to first <laughs> highlight that this group is, aside from the one, this group really, I think, was closest to the front runners because they got the nominations that one would think of as like, yeah duh you know big awards 
Um, I would let you I would let you take the wheel. Which one of these films would you like to discuss first? Hanasen. All right, Hanasen from Hungary. Uh, just a Which stars Oscar nominee Klaus Maria Brandauer. Yes, this premiered at Cannes. It stars Oscar nominee Klaus Maria Brandauer of Out of Africa fame. It was directed by Isvan Shabo. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. Um, Isvan Shabo, who was submitted four times by Hungary and was nominated four times this decade, and he won for Mephisto in 1981. Um, it got a Golden Globe nomination and a Spirit nomination in 1989. It is about um, a soldier who, after being injured at war, um, I don't know if it's because of the war or even before that, but he can read minds and he can predict the future. And then he becomes this curious um, phenom at the time. And then suddenly when there's this rising Nazism in Germany, he then foresees the rise of Hitler. And then people were like, "Um, are you supporting him? Or like, Mm that's a dangerous thing to do. And then until slowly, Hitler really becomes the thing. And um, his his now being his now was used, trying to be used by the propaganda, to like, well he, you know, to support their cause. Um, what do you think of Hannesen? So the first thing that I have to say is that this is a biopic. This man was a real person. Yes. And. That's my main problem with it because I don't have a problem with historical inaccuracies, but this is dealing with Nazis. And from what I read, this man, Hannesen, he was a Nazi. Like he supported uh, he supported Hitler. And they, people also say that he was the one that gave Hitler like classes of oratory and taught him like how to speak in public. And this movie makes it seem like he wasn't part of any political party and he wasn't supporting anything, but he was a Nazi. You see, that should have come up in my research, but it didn't. <laughs> um, makes sense. Uh, kind of shocking. Well, you saw it in my face. Um, but yeah. No, I was going to say that I also, since this is a story about a real person, it makes it seem like he really has these powers and that he really is like a clairvoyant or something. But like in real life, he was a, a, a con artist. Oh. Okay. I don't know how to process that information, but um, as a film, what do you think of it? I didn't like it very much. It's very dull. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> oh, and also, you mentioned that it, that the director did Mephisto and other things, and I knew that I had heard that name somewhere, and then I found out that he directed Being Julia, the no- the movie that An Advanting got nominated for in two thousand five. Yes. 2004. Yeah. So, nothing. Okay. Um, No, nothing. Hannison. That's why. Yeah. (laughs) That's why you wanted to talk about it first. Hannison, I think, 
is fascinating on its own as a story if you know because not knowing the history i i like oh okay i i'm i'm on board i guess and i think cosmaria brandauer is really good you know despite now you're saying that <laughs> it's a really twisted portrayal of what happened in history i think it was really good in this one and i think um I mean, I did. I don't really that's support that much his nomination for Out of Africa, but uh, this one I thought um, it's. I don't think the film was complex enough, but it lays out its moral dilemmas quite effectively, and that's why I think I was kind of, um, I was hooked with the story. It's that. I, you know, it, it was a curious thing. I was interested. And then there's this performance right in the center that uh, delivers it. But yeah, it's it's not something that I would watch again for just, I don't know. It was an interesting experience. And uh, uh, it's well made, I think. Oh, and... Uh, uh, my... Oh, uh, Klaus Maria Brandauer is also in Mephisto, and I heard that he's really great in that. Yeah. So maybe you will enjoy that when you see it. I might. <laughs> Let's see this season. Um, moving on, which film would you like to discuss next? Now, The Music Teacher. All right, The Music Teacher from Belgium, directed by Gerard Corbiau. Didn't get anything didn't screen in any major film festivals. It is about um, um, a, a singer who retired and then decided to teach, uh, continue teaching uh, two singers, a woman and a thief, a, a male thief, <laughs> male thief. And then he trains them. And then ultimately uh, there is this rivalry with a, another singer, I guess. And then they're, Students are then put into a singing duel. Um, it's really hard to describe this film, just story-wise. What What do you think of it? Uh, I think it's good. It's fine, and it's really weird. Like uh, when I thought, you know, when they when the students are having the duel and they put put on like these costumes. And I was like, is that a KKK? Oh my gosh, I thought the same. It's a very poor costume choice. Yeah, or like, or maybe it's, it's, I don't know, maybe it's accurate. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But uh, it's a fun movie. It's fine. Like, I like, uh, I like the singing. Yeah, good music. Yeah. But this and Hannison, I don't really have much to say about them. They're just like this one is better than Hannison, in my opinion. It's more enjoyable. Yeah, I think once in a while we get these lightweight historical or period dramas in this category, especially in the earlier years, 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 earlier years, which are um, harmless. I don't think they're anything remarkable, but. Uh, this film, this film, I can imagine like putting just on like 
I just watch it in the afternoon because it, it flows. It, it knows what it wants to tell. It is yeah. um, a light drama going to some humorous elements and then some serious elements. And then there's this romance that kind of, and it, it all works fine. Fine is really the yeah. key word in this film, I think. And the ending I thought was satisfying. Like the, the duo, like the whole the singing competition. Yeah. Because it, it, they found out that the, the main, like the guy that's from the, or this school that we've been following from the beginning, and the one from the rival school, like they have very similar voices. And they are trying to get hurt first before the other. And they have this competition where they put like a mask on so people can judge them fairly and they start singing a song and then one of the guys one of the guys' voices cracks and we think that it's like the the one that we know. But then he takes the mask off and it's not him. That is a satisfying moment. Yeah. So yay, if you I mean I think it's available somewhere on DVD. Um, with English subtitles, so if you want to catch that, this is, it's a, it's an enjoyable one, you know, nothing. Yeah. If you have nothing to do on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's consciously not high stakes. I think yeah. Hannison is very like self-serious, like this is a story, blah, blah, blah. But with the music teacher, it's, it's, it's chill. Like, it's not a big, like, y- like you can lay back. And just watch this, and then you would enjoy it. Oh, and there's something else about Hanusen that I forgot. Like the version that you saw was like one hour and fifty minutes, right? Yes, it's the only one available. But I looked, yeah, I looked it up, and it's supposed to be like two and a half hours. We're saved. Yeah, I don't need for yeah, but that's the thing. I think the theatrical one is like more than two hours, but the laser disc version is like one hour fifty seven. Um, but that's the only one available that we can find. So, and that's better. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot imagine like thirty more minutes of Hannison. All right, so we're down to the last two. I want you to take the wheel, and where do you want to go next? With Salam Bombay. All right, Salam Bombay from India. Bombay, yeah. Um, <laughs> they're only the second nomination after 1957, which is like weird because it's a huge industry <laughs> in Indian film industry. Is, you know, it's a mammoth of its own. Um, it premiered at Cannes, where it won Camera Door and Audience Choice Award. It is one of the top five foreign films of National Board of Review. It won Boston, nominated for Golden Globe, nominated for BAFTA in 1989, directed by Mira Nair, and it is about a kid, a young boy, who was left um, left alone by because he's part of this um, um, traveling circus, and then he was left um, to roam around the streets of Mumbai, and then he finds this um, young girl who is a virgin who is about to be sell- sold I think to an older man. So, and then he tries to save money so that he can go home to his hometown. But um, it's a really misfortunate uh, life there in the streets of Mumbai. That's why he has a hard time fulfilling that dream goal. Actually, um, again directed by Mira Nair. 
Uh, what do you think of Salam Mumbai? I think this one is really good. Uh-huh. Like, uh, like uh, when I went and saw reviews from friends, like one that I saw was someone saying that this is what Slumdog Millionaire was trying to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, like the guy that plays Baba, he, he uh, is Baba? Let's go with that. Like the guy, the pimp, the pimp. Yeah. <laughs> like he's very easy on the eyes. All right, I thought of that, but I think his crimes <laughs> really was superseded. Yeah, but I can overlook that. I'm, I'm just right. talking about I'm him. Looking, I'm <laughs> judging your principles right now. <laughs> no, I don't mean that as a real person, but he still looks nice. But anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really like oh and we should talk about like the reason why he's trying to save the money for go to go home because he like he has an older his dad is dead and he lived with his older brother and his mother and like his older brother is a jerk an asshole and like bullied him and so like his older brother got a new bike and the kid like the protagonist burned the bike and his mother threw him out of the house and said that if he doesn't get $500, they get 500 rupees to give his brother for the bike, then he better not bother coming back. <laughs> and he's trying to get the 500 rupees to go back to an abusive home. <laughs> you see, I didn't catch that and that no, makes it that... sadder. Yeah, it's very... It's a very interesting thing. And then... Uh... And he's working, like, bringing tea. Chaiwala. Like, there's a tea stand. Eh? And from some yeah. millionaire, the Chaiwala. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I really liked it. <laughs> uh, Salah Mumbai. This is a really interesting one. Um, I, f- I believe that this is the film that got better and better as it went along. Yeah. I thought the beginning was like, okay, setting things up, sure, I don't mind. Then the story, the story happens like, okay, I'm, I'm engaged, but whatever. And then it just really steadily becomes this highly engaging fight for survival, really. It becomes this... It's it almost feels like an adventure film on the streets of Mumbai just because of the high stakes that he has and imagine like he is just fighting for he is I don't know what five hundred rupees is now but he's fighting for five hundred rupees and he already has two fifty he's supposed to have two fifty and then he has already earned like one fifty from the from the tea store so he should already have like four hundred if not the deductions so like he could probably like get it in like a few months time but we understand that. Maybe that maybe that's a small amount of money, but for people who have nothing, it's a fight. It's a big fight, and we we get yeah. that emotionally. And Mira and I has this thing of talking about like oh the the conqueror of like depicting poverty. This one I am really surprised because it felt sophisticated. Like it, it, this also felt clean. In terms of like depiction of poverty, but at the same time, it <laughs> did not feel inorganic for me. So, I was, yeah. yeah, 
<laughs> so I think I was really in that. And then also the characters all around are interesting. Like um, the, the, the mother prostitute <laughs> sounded wrong. The mother prostitute, the pimp, uh, the drug addicted uh, older guy. And every one of them has a claim in the stakes of the life of the boy, which I don't know why I forgot the name. But there was such a highly engaging story that by the end, and he also, not only was he trying to, not only was he trying to save himself, he was also trying to save the girl, the virgin girl. He was also trying to save the, the mother, the prostitute mother. And it becomes this entangled web of connections that you cannot just drop. I mean, when we talk about Pella the Conqueror, there are loose ends. Like, why are we following this character? This film has characters that has strong connections as it went along. And it just compounds on the, the weight of his journey. That by the end of the film, you know, we're kind of leaving hanging. But I felt that was such a great way to end the film because like, yeah, it's not over. And this is not going to be over for him anytime soon. But we are already so invested in the story. And it just goes to show that I would love to see a film like this that, you know, just steadily pulls you in until you feel like, no, 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 go, go run, run, run. Like, you know, you already have this visceral reaction. Like, no, 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 run, run. Stab him, stab him. Go, 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 go. That <laughs> engagement high level of engagement it's so delicious when you get to experience that kind of film like you're there and that film does it it puts you in that story emotionally place wise and um all things considered really this is and this is a feature film debut oh my gosh so mira and i really did mic drop <laughs> <laughs> And I, I also really find like that scene because there's a point where he and the prostitute's daughter get like pulled over, uh, like they get stopped by the police. Mm -hmm. And the police take them to a shelter. And they're trying to escape the shelter, but you want them to stay there because you know that they're going to be better taken care of there than they are if they go back home. Yeah. And like the when the the prostitute comes to get her daughter, and the social worker is telling her like these kids don't really know what's best for them. Like they are really attached to their parents because they don't know that they are, like doing them more harm than good. Yeah, and I love those film moments where it's not an easy choice for you as well. It's like you're in the same confounding moment of like. You're invested with everyone, but everyone is flawed and everything in this environment is flawed and like tough decisions. Like we're kind of like say this, like I want tough decisions for the characters, but that makes, that makes it really engaging and involving when even you think like, well, what would I have I done? I, I don't know. It is really well done. And um, I just feel bad every time his savings you know, when the savings was taken from him and um, was used and to... Like, the moment, 
Yeah, I was almost yelling at him because the guy that's a drug addict is kind of his friend, and he comes and tells him like, "Oh, you can save, you can put your money here. It's safe, but like safe from, but save you're still gonna ass. know that." Yeah, <laughs> like he knows it's there, and he's a drug addict. So like, how do you not think that he's not gonna steal it? Yeah, but then it's also that character which we should have hated because that just set him back. You know, his goal had set him back. Again, that's a character where, like, you know, there is empathy with that character. So, like... Yeah. He's a victim of circumstances. Yeah. And then uh, he loses the money from the the tea uh, gig. (laughs) And then he... (laughs) We were thinking, like, these kids are dirty and they were allowed to serve at a wedding. But anyway, they they were (laughs) serving at the wedding and then they have... um, you know, he earned like 20 rupees and his and his friend gave him the 20 rupees because he knows he needs it. But then this this freaking girl can't run. The police came. It's too late. The police thought they were stealing. They took the money. Zero. And it just mm-hmm. crushing every time. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's not even poverty porn. It's just... There's understanding to these characters, and it, the, I feel that Mira Nair really loves these characters, and it gets to show that the film is not relishing in the misery. No, it just goes like, a lot, as a matter of fact. It has a lot of vibrancy. Yeah, that Pella doesn't have. Pella is very gray and blue, and this has a very bright and saturated colors. No, we can go we can move on to women on the verge yeah speaking of vibrant colors the last film on this lineup is women oh, on the wait, verge wait wait a second i also want to say that the guy i mentioned his name is nana patkar all right priorities oh my gosh <laughs> oh my gosh my introduction to women okay on we the can verge. move back uh, i forgot my all right so the final nominee is women on the verge of a nervous breakdown from Spain, I want to say the title again. Mujeres al borde de un ataque del nervioso. Boom. Love yeah. it. One of the most <laughs> epic titles in this category ever. Um, it, it premiered in Venice. It won National Board of Review. New York Film Critics Circle. Golden Globe nomination. BAFTA nomination. European Film Awards Best Actress. And Toronto's People's Choice Award, which by now is like, when you get that Best Picture, yes, but then yeah. it got it in yeah. 1988. It was directed by Pedro Almodovar. Uh, Pedro Almodovar, who was submitted by Spain seven times, um, got nominated three times, an additional two as a director nomination, a screenplay win when he wasn't submitted. Uh, it is about Peppa, um, a voice actor who was left by her lover and then suddenly she tries to find out why. And then along the way, he meets various characters. <laughs> it's just the worst way to summarize the film. <laughs> Oh my gosh, but um, it's it's all 
What do you think of this film? What do you think of this film? I love everything about this movie. It's perfect. <laughs> like, and I, I want to ask you first, like when we talked before, you said that you weren't really attracted to Antonio Banderas because you're talking about like a uh, grandpa or something like that. Do you still feel like that after seeing this? This is the first time I got it. <laughs> and then and he's okay. also a very horny virginal yeah. fanatic and I'm like same page bro let's go <laughs> let's do he this. goes around just kissing people and like and come here the glasses and the oversized shirt when I first well saw, anyway that, like this movie is yeah no first scene of him oversized polo and I'm like is this film trying to bone or kill me is this <laughs> The, the last person I saw who wore this is already dead. So, <laughs> what is going on? But, yeah. So, do go on. Yeah. Th this movie is all about the women. And Antonio Banderas is just there as I can be. <laughs> and uh, I love all the women in this movie. If you you could replace, like, the entire supporting actress lineup that year and fill it with women from this movie. <laughs> and it would be better. <laughs> And, like, I love how it's so melodramatic and, like, all the performances are great and the production design, that apartment is, like, the the, the balcony with all the, like, the immense amount of plants that are there. And how you can tell that the, you can see, like, the like the city when you look over the balcony, but you can tell that it's just painted on a wall. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Oh. You see her looking at, and you see her looking out at the wall. Yeah, it's perfect. I love it. Here's the thing: when I first saw that background, I thought this must be a very <laughs> conscious choice. Backtracking, I don't know how to explain it. But I think the opening credits is one of the queerest things I ever saw. Yeah. I it's all in um queer to queer gut. Um I am surprised that the academy went with this. <laughs> because it's so freaking out there. It's what is it? It's a it's a comedy. It's a very exaggerated melodramatic comedy crime. It defies those categories. Maybe it's all of those things. But I never get lost. It's no. <laughs> all tonally coherent and Almodovar goes big with his um, directorial choices, big and small. They all work. And then you see all of the actors, especially... I want to get the name right. <laughs> Carmen Maura. Who is phenomenal in juggling all of these craziness... And finding the humanity in that. Because if we don't buy the emotional arc of this character, of this performance, 
this would all just be like, you know, crazy hijinks. But she sells it the moment she comes in and, I don't know, throws the telephone, throws everything, burns the bed, puts sleeping pills in the gazpacho, <laughs> letting everyone drink it, chasing someone in the airport. It's all there. <laughs> And I love, like, you, you mentioned that she's, a, she's an actress. And I love, like, that little, uh, the commercial that they show that she's in, where she, it, it's like a commercial for a cleaning product, like a detergent. And she's playing, like, the mother of a murderer. And, like, the murderer <laughs> brings, brings her the clothes, like, soaked in blood, and she has to clean it. And then the police come, and they look at the clothes and, like, oh, it's clean. <laughs> and she looks at the camera. <laughs> and like also at the beginning like she's doing the dub of Johnny Guitar and she's dubbing Joan Crawford and I love Johnny Guitar so that's another thing that makes me love this movie yeah and, and yeah no okay. yeah. yeah just everything here is deliriously good I mean I've had a delirium when I was six so I know what delirious is um And this is another thing again where like no loose ends. Everything wrapping up in this culmination of it's so exaggerated it's so serious already. It's very exaggerated. It's already serious. And, And I also yeah. love I love uh, like uh, her friend Candela When she first starts calling and telling him, like, oh, I have a very serious problem. Like, I need to talk to you. And she's like, oh, I'll talk to you later. Like, oh, you're so annoying. <laughs> like, leave me alone. And then she, and then she kept saying, like, oh, I need to talk to you. I have a very serious problem. <laughs> and then she tries to kill herself. <laughs> and that's when they talk. And then Antonio Banderas come with his girlfriend. <laughs> and I love, like, her face. <laughs> like, that No. <laughs> She has a very peculiar face. And then she drinks the gazpacho and falls asleep there. And Antonio Banderas starts start kissing Candela. And it's amazing. I love it. Yeah, this is like, and this is perfect. Like, I don't know, one hour 29, I think. Yeah. It's just so sharply paced. And with this kind of like heightened setup. I, I think it's hard to like maintain the energy of a film when it is this high wire because this is a very tricky you gotta be seriously invested in this. It's not just like they're they it's like it's not so I don't know. Of course it's self aware that it's um a heightened version of reality, but at the same time I don't think you can go that far if you're not believing in the underlying drama of it all. I mean, I think the best comedies are those that have really human stakes. Like, I don't know, like Tootsie and Unemployment or like Bridesmaids and Separation and Cider Disorder. Uh, disorder? Depression, I mean, Disorder. Yeah. So, you've got to nail that truth first. Because only then you can go wild with how you interpret the story and it does it so well because this film is about betrayal and passion and sometimes just 
the things that don't make sense, they just do. They make sense when you're there. I also need to talk about Julieta Serrano. Mm-hmm. And, the, like, the, her makeup in this movie is amazing. Like, the mascara that she has that looks like, like oh eyelashes. <laughs> and the wigs that she uses and the... Like, the, everything about her is just perfect. Yeah, we had to take a closer look at, like, eye, eyebrows. Oh, no, 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 it's... No, that's just the mascara. Yeah, oh, shucks. And, like, the whole uh, chase when she's in the... <laughs> in the <laughs> when, she, <laughs> when she's on top of the... On the back of the... Uh, uh, how do you call that? Uh, motorcycle. Yeah. And then Carmen Maura starts coming after her. And Julieta Serrano starts shooting at them. <laughs> <laughs> and I had seen this movie before. Like, I had seen it before. And I saw it again, like, on December. And I just loved it so much that I had to see it again. And I saw it again last night. <laughs> yeah. And when I saw, when of course, you know, when everyone was drinking gazpacho already, it was like, oh, no. This is... Oh, of course, it's out there already. When, um... What's the name of Cardinamara? Uh, Peppa was Peppa. Throw, throwing everything, and then Antonio Banderas just randomly kissing people, and then um, it's already out there. But the moment that chase happened, and I'm like, all right, I'm letting go of any expectations. I will not be able to predict this. This is as wild as it can get. And we've had to take account that this was a very conservative academy then. So for them to go for this, it's just like, come on, guys, you could do it more, more of this. I mean, because this is, this is almost make, like this is like um one of those rare instances of like, come on, guys, you went there. Come on, give us more. And it's a really great choice because I would not have thought that it would be this wild <laughs> I had a different expectation uh, what I loved most about uh, Carmen Maura's performance was in that scene when Julieta Serrano and the police come into the house and she's like because she's an actress and she's like giving this performance to them like telling her uh, like lying to them Yeah. but like also in the lies there's like a lot of truth like when she's talking about uh, I forgot about the guy's name. Like the man, the, the man. Yeah, the man. <laughs> Let's not mention talk... any names of men. It's just it's about the women. okay. It's just about women because yeah, this movie is all about the women. Like all the women in this movie are great. Even like the ones that just are there for like one or two scenes, like the receptionist at the hotel. Yeah. When she's talking about like, oh, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, I can lie. And that's like the bad thing about Jehovah's Witnesses. That we can lie. Like, I wish we could, but we can't. And also like, like the girlfriend of the guy in the in the motorcycle, when she's in the car and she's yelling at your Julieta Serrano, like, that's my man, you little mother. <laughs> and saying like, oh, I think that she's grabbing him in the crotch. Yeah. I would want to rewatch this like because you know I re- I watched this for the context of the podcast and you know thinking that it was a nominee and um, because I was 
quote unquote required to do this. I required myself to do this. I would just love to like, you know, sit back, have some snacks and enjoy the ride. This is one of those films where it is a ride and you have to like let go of your own guard and just surrender to this vision of Almodovar and just go with it every step of the way because it is that good. Yeah, and you can take it too seriously because the movie is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. And there are it so is. many like uh, coincidences that on any other movie would be like contrived, but like the tone of this movie makes it so that you that it fits with everything that happens. Like when uh, when the man is down there with the lawyer. And they're like getting the suitcase and she like throws a record out and he hits her in the head. Yeah, it's like <laughs> girl. And then they throw the like the answering machine down and it falls on the car. Yeah. Everything just like, oh my gosh. And I first saw Almodovar in Broken Embraces and Painting Glory. So this is a vastly like different Almodovar that I'm seeing, but it's just so glorious when you watch it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, only someone who knows his craft could do something, his or her, who can do this. Because it's so, it's, it's a fine line of like just making a ridiculous film and doing something that is intentionally ridiculous but is smart in doing that i just loved it yeah um, and Mauda was robbed she should have been a best actress and she should have well like glenn close is there so it would have been like close but i wouldn't have been upset if she won i have seen oh i have seen all five. Oh, i still haven't oh, seen jodie foster uh and there's uh, another one yeah. that I haven't seen, but I don't remember who that is. Melanie Griffith? No, I saw that. And I saw uh, Sigourney. And I saw Glenn. Meryl Streep, A Cry in the Dark. Oh, yeah. That, that. Oh, she's so great in that. I mean, I'm a Meryl Streep fan, but it's like, come on. She was on fire in the 80s. So I, I can get rid of Melanie Griffith and put Carmen Mauro but- but that was so fun as well. That nomination was so fun. I'm not a fan of her. In working girl. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> um, but yeah, Carmen, was it eligible that year? Yeah, it was released. I saw. I looked it up. It was like really. Uh, it was released in America in '88. Yeah, so that's women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. So, uh, what are your general thoughts on these group of nominees? I think that there's one that's amazing. There are two that are. There's one that's amazing, and that's obviously women of birth. Like, it's really good. It's a good group. Yeah, um, I can't throw anything. I mean, I'm just really high on women on the verge. Salam Mumbai and um, Salam Mumbai is the again, it's curious thing of like it got better. Yeah, so there are parts where like, oh, this is good, and then there are parts where like it could have go gone toe to toe with women and the virgin nervous breakdown. Um, again, I thought Bella the Conqueror was, um, a, a, you know, it was, um, 
it was a good time to watch that film. The music teacher, likewise, Hanasen kept me intrigued, uh, despite my arm's length at times. Um, or just men don't interest me that much. But, uh, well, not in other moments. But, <laughs> um, I mean, I do, but anyway. And this is, I cannot throw any of these nominations under the bus. We, I don't think we don't have a huge stinker. No. No. But Hannafin is a bit of a stinker for me. <laughs> but yeah. I've seen stinkers in this category and they get worse. <laughs> <laughs> they are worse. <laughs> That's why I didn't mind Hannafin. <clears throat> um, all right. So in the other categories of the Oscars, there weren't really a lot of none, actually, outside of the foreign language film category. Well, probably. So. No, yeah, I mean, aside from the five. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, like, uh, if you consider Stand and Deliver, which is, like, a, it's about this teacher that was, uh, I don't remember what country he's from, but he's from Latin America, and he's teaching in California, I think, and he has, like, a class full of Latino kids. And so there's a bit of Spanish in that, but it's in English mostly. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did it qualify for the Globes for foreign language? <laughs> like, minery <laughs> in foreign language. Oh. Sick. Oh no! It's not qualified for um, foreign language from the Globes. They, they still do that, right? Minery and the farewell. They're foreign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're something, Asian, something. you're foreign. Yeah. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I will never belong. Um, <laughs> all right. So now let's go to the other submissions. Um. First of all, I just want to preface. How many? How many films have you seen for this podcast? Well, I saw apart from the the five nominees, I saw fifteen of the submissions, and I saw like eight or or ten other movies outside outside of that. But yeah, it's all so, around 30. More or less. Yeah, that makes me feel so bad because I only saw like seven. <laughs> but I love guests like that, so that would be great. So there are thir- <laughs> there were 31 submissions this year. The one disqualified is The Vanishing from the Netherlands. It was disqualified because, according to the Academy, more than 50% of the language is in French. And French is not an official language of the Netherlands. Uh, we'll talk about The Vanishing later. Um, let's first talk about... No, you talk about the biggest reason why you chose this year. Actually. Yeah. Um, one-way ticket from... Let's um, place. Uh, the Republica Dominicano. Uh, it's you know what introduce your own submission I would love to hear it yeah so this film is based on a real story something that happened here in the early 80s that's called as the Regina Express Massacre and it was uh, like people like we had been in a dictatorship from 1930 to 1961 and after that there was a lot of uh there was a we had a coup that happened after that and there was a war and like in the early 80s things were still very like there was a lot of uh poverty here 
and people tried to go to America in any way that they could. So people like went in boats to Puerto Rico and to Miami. So the movie is about something that happened in the 80s where a group of 30 men uh, paid a military ship to get inside there so the ship would take them to Miami illegally. But the, someone tipped off the police here and the, the, someone tipped off the police and the police went on the ship investigating to find the guys and get them off. So the crew of the ship hid the men inside a tank of water in the ship. Like that's, it's like a tank that's inside of a ship that fills up with water. I think that is like to, to control like the level that the ship is in. And they hid the men inside there and most of them drowned inside because they were trapped there for hours. And the ones that like only eight of the men in there survived and most of them are still alive today. And there was no justice after that, like no, no repercussions for anyone really. So yeah, the movie is a dramatization of that event and like, uh, and like it shows two of the men there in like, uh, like the last few days before they get on the ship and died. Uh, and it's about that and, it was also like the first feature film that was produced like with a completely Dominican crew and cast because the, it was the second ever submission from the Dominican Republic. But the first one was like set in Cuba or something like that. I don't remember, I haven't seen it. So yeah, and it's still considered like to this day, like the best movie ever made in the Dominican Republic, which isn't saying much because most of it is trash. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I had heard my mom talk about this movie when I told her that I didn't watch any movies, the Dominican movies, because most of them suck. And she said that she agreed, but that she liked One Way Ticket. And I had heard about it for years. And you finally gave me the reason to watch it. Um, first of all, um, I'm feeling very down right now just because of the story you told, which is really um, enraging when you hear about that. But let's go to the film. What do you think of your own submission? I went in not expecting much because I'm very cynical. Okay. Because I had heard, I didn't have very high expectations. Because, uh, But I was very surprised, pleasantly. Because it's like, you've seen Fruitvale Station, right? Yes. Like, it's like that, that you know how this is going to end and what's going to happen in the end. But because, you know, like, even in this sense before, like, all the bad things happen, there's, like, a sense of melancholy. And it has, like, a really good, like, the score. And it's just good. And I didn't expect it to be good. Is it available with English subtitles? I don't think so. I think I couldn't find it <laughs> Like, only found I'll just try it. Yeah, I just try to find it probably. Um, it's good uh, that you feel that way because you know in the Philippines there are a lot of times when like I don't even understand why we submitted that. <laughs> oh, um, and it was also like the yeah. only option that we had because it was the only feature film made that year. It was the first one that we ever made that was like completely Dominican. Like the film industry here wasn't like big in the eighties. 
And after this one, like the next submission was in 1995 for a film called Nueva York, which is like the way that we say New York there. And, uh, and it was directed by one of the actors in One Way Ticket. Oh. And the director of One Way Ticket is called Agliberto Melendez. He didn't make another film un until 2015 because after One Way Ticket came out, there was like another president that was kind of like a dictator, but it wasn't really, but, but like he, there was a lot of repression and he killed and he killed people that spoke out against against him, and uh, like he pressured Melendez to start to stop working, so he didn't make another film until twenty fifteen. And yeah, this, this, he's yeah. now teaching cinema studies in the university where I study, but I don't study cinema, so I've never met him. It's time to shift. <laughs> no, I mean there you go. It's quite a story. Um, I really don't have a comment because I haven't seen. I would love to see like even a trailer for this one. Oh my gosh! So, are you happy that this was one of the submissions that your country made for the Oscars? Yeah, it's, I think it's the only one. That, no, I've seen an, another one, but this is definitely the best movie that I've seen. The, the best Dominican movie I've seen. I'm I'm going to take a look. I'm going to take a look at right now. Like, what Dominican? submissions have i seen i have seen sand dollars i haven't seen that there you go um i was trying to get to see woodpeckers and cocote but i don't know if i can and i might get the chance to see i don't know if i get the chance to see this uh, the projectionist i don't know if i would be able to get that uh, anyway, oh, and also, so that's the, yeah. the submission that we have from this year is directed by a woman. I have not seen it and I don't know how to see it, but it's there. It's called uh, like a, a, a Miss, state of madness. Miss Cinco Locos? Yeah. My Spanish teacher would hate me <laughs> for not knowing how to pronounce that. 500. Mis locos. Ah, wow. All right. So, I do want to talk about the only submission that I saw, and it was even disqualified. <laughs> so, The Vanishing from the Netherlands. It is one of the top five of National Board of Review in 1991. It is about a man who looks for his girlfriend after her girlfriend gone, what, went missing. When they were gonna vacate, we're gonna have a vacation in France. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think of the vanishing? I, I, you know, like at the beginning, like the very first scene is that the car is like, uh, the car, like they run out of gas and they are inside a dark tunnel. And then he leaves her alone there. And then she talks about like how she felt being alone and like he shouldn't have done that. And then she disappears. And what I thought at the beginning of the movie was that it was gonna be like another gun girl. Like she like she went missing on purpose, like to teach him a lesson. But then when it turns out that it wasn't that, I was a bit disappointed, but it's still good. I liked it. And I found like the conversations between the, the man that's looking for like her her boyfriend and the other man in the movie 
I found those conversations very interesting. I respect this film. <laughs> um, the, the, the structure is very curious um, on what it chose to focus on. Uh, it was never really the kind of thriller that I thought it would be. I thought it would be a traditional thriller, but then this was actually very quiet and very more and un- un- maybe unnerving in that it was exploring things in a more quiet way. Um, I wasn't always interested, I would admit, uh, but the final, I think, 30 minutes of the film, especially like the last 10, deeply disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and especially what happens to the man that's looking for his wife. Are they married? Are they married? Wife or girlfriend? I think girlfriend. I said. I think I said girlfriend. Well, like, I like what happens to him is very disturbing. <laughs> yeah, like the thing, and it, the film was very matter of fact in what it was trying when it was doing it. You know, it wasn't trying to be, for example. It wasn't trying to be Gone Girl that is twisting expectations. This one is just very matter of fact, which as a film goer might be not uh, unsatisfying because we are used to like, this is how a thriller is set up. But at the same time, it is disturbing in another way because the fact that this isn't this huge thing that the th- the this is like a 30 year old film and we're still talking avoiding spoilers <laughs> but the way it portrayed its characters are very disturbing because of how no bullshit it is it just shows the characters and um Interesting. I mean, this would not have been dis- disqualified now because of, there's no rule, language rule anymore. Do you think, because this was kind of hyped at the time, do you think this would have been a nominee in the five? I am not sure. Like, it may have been, but I think that it's kind of too, uh, too, too, too muted, like slow, kind of, for the Academy. Like, I don't know if they would go for that. But it feels like I, I think it, it could have been nominated and it had like a very high profile. So that may have helped it. I don't know if they're going to go with the twisted nature of yeah. it. I mean, and, it, and I like how it shows that not all like psychopaths are like crazy people. Like a lot of people, a lot of psychopaths like the man in this movie are very nice. And and you wouldn't assume that they are capable of doing these terrible things just from looking at them. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they are just people around, walking, nothing really doing hugely suspicious. Sometimes they host podcasts <laughs> and they're really creepy. <laughs> So yeah, moving on. <laughs> I'm not gonna reveal myself. All right. So I, I, just to be clear, I don't have people. Bur- no spoiler. No 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 no. All right. So I know you have seen one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 
You've seen 13 submissions, so we're just going to go with it kind of quickly. Yeah. Um, and your thoughts on them. I'm going to introduce each film. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Breathe in. The Debt from Argentina. It won Silver Bear in Berlin and Silver Hugo at Chicago. It is about a teacher in a rural village in the brink of the Falklands War. What do you think of The Debt? That is one of the worst ones that I saw. <laughs> like, I don't think it's actively bad, but it's just boring. And sometimes that's even worse because it's not very memorable. I don't really remember. Like, I saw it just a few weeks ago and I don't remember much about it. Um, yeah. Is it available with, with subtitles? I don't think so. Ah, sí, porque hablo español. So, no necesito para subtítulos. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, so it's thumbs up or thumbs down? No. Uh, so it's bad. Thumbs down. <laughs> oh, th thumbs down. All right. The story of Fausta from Brazil. It premiered in Chicago. It is about a maid in Rio de Janeiro who dreams of building her own house. That one is really fun. Like, it's about a woman. <laughs> it's about a woman that's... Uh... Is she on the verge of another nervous breakdown? <laughs> no, it's not like that. There's, like, this old man that's in love with her. And he, like... And she's, like, getting money off him. <laughs> like, she takes him on dates and she makes him pay for everything. And then, like, maybe gives him a kiss or something. She's, like, teasing him. <laughs> and... and he, He's like a gold digger, <laughs> but it's fun. It's it's very light, maybe. And she, and she's married, and her husband has an accident at work, so he has to stay home, and he's not working. And she's bringing all the money, and yeah, it's fun. It's fine. It's good. Yeah, so to all yeah, to all the old men listening, I'm open. I'm just kidding, no. Alright, so <clears throat> next one. Are you ready? Red Sorghum from China. One Golden Bear in Berlin. It is a debut film of Zhang Jimu and Gong Li. It is about a young widow who runs a winery after her husband isn't able to run it anymore. Meanwhile, there's this Japanese invasion that's gonna happen. Yeah, this is one of the best ones. I love Gong Li in it. And Gong Li is a goddess. Yeah. And this is the first time I see her in anything. Like maybe I saw Ash, I saw her in Memoirs of a Geisha, but I haven't seen any Yang Yimou films before this one. And I, I know I have to watch uh, Razor the Red Lantern. <laughs> That this one's really good. Like you said that her husband isn't able to run it anymore. But it's like about a woman that gets like sold to a man. Like she gets married to him. And he's like the owner of this plantation of a flower called red sorghum. That that's what they make the wine out of. And before she even gets there. Because the guy that she, they married her to is, has leprosy. So no one goes near him and before she gets there he dies so now she's the owner of the plantation and she and she starts making the wine and she falls in love with one of the men that work for her it's really good and then there's a very very 
like the far like the Japanese invasion doesn't happen until like the last thirty minutes, and it's there's a really upsetting scene there involving like the peeling of someone's skin. <laughs> All right, moving on. Oh my gosh. But anyway, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, the Zhangji Mugongli train is just, oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, last season, like half of the season, like from 1990 to like 1994, I mean, I haven't seen 1995, but my love for this partnership, the Gongli Zhangji Mu, is just like, oh my gosh, they should have won something. Race to Red Lantern anyway. is something that I need to watch very soon. <laughs> yeah. And Pharaoh McConcubine. And Judo, too. And um, To Live. And um, Story of Kuju and then Shanghai Tri. Anyway. Yeah, it's great. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so. Letters from the Park from Cuba. Um, the director is also one of the directors of Strawberry and Chocolate, which got nominated at the Academy Awards. It's about a widowed poet who, for hire, who falls in love with one of his client's subjects. So, yeah, this one, it's from what I read in the poster, it's supposed to be based on a novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who is a very famous author, uh, writer. And it's based on uh, Amor en el tiempo de cólera, like love in the times of cólera. And like... I have read it. I read it when I was in school, but I don't remember it very well. And it's nothing like the book. Like the book is like this very epic Rome uh, story of two lovers that can be together. And like the repercussions that that has on their families. But this movie is like a mix of Cyrano de Bergerac and Central Station. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because like the I love your references because I understand them now. <laughs> because the poet is like writing uh, writing love letters for money, and he but he actually sends them on like Fernando Montenegro, <laughs> and then he starts like writing for her like Cyrano like Cyrano does for the guy in Cyrano Bergerac, and he starts sending love letters. That's actually what he feels for her, but he's writing her like. Like it's from the other guy, and then it's fine. It's not like amazing or anything, but it's good. It's enjoyable. All right. And that yeah. one is available with subtitles. The... Yay! <laughs> the Reader from France, National Board of Review Top 5 of 1989. It's about a woman who becomes a reader to clients after reading a book about a reader that is it's fine it's okay like i i'm confused why friends picked it when they had other options mm-hmm, which we're gonna talk about later yeah but it's i don't have anything to say about it it's just fine it's Maybe that's why sometimes they submit films because they're fine. And it's not contentious. Mm. Maybe. Maybe sometimes, you know. Maybe sometimes. All right. The Legend of the Holy Drinker from Italy. 
Golden Lion in Venice. It's about a homeless man who was given 200 francs by a stranger. I want to find that stranger because I want 200 francs. What's going on? All right. So this one is interesting because it was filmed in English and dubbed to Italian. And that's what got nominated. But the only version that is available now is the original version in English. And that one for the people in the United States is very available because it's an Amazon Prime for free. And uh, it stars Rutger Hauer, who you may know from Blade Runner. And I think he's amazing. Like his performance is really good, especially like in the last scene. He has a scene with a little girl where she, where he, because he the stranger gives him the money and he says that oh i cannot take it because i have honor and i have to and i can pay you back and then the guy tells him that he can take the money and then pay pay it to the virgin like give donate it to the church and he tries to give the money to the church at multiple times and he's always interrupted by someone or something and then there's one point almost at the end when he tries to give the money to a little girl that has the same name as the virgin. And I think that thing is heartbreaking because she's like telling him that he doesn't owe her anything or things like that. It's very sweet. But the movie itself is kind of dull. It's not very engaging. So the movie itself isn't that great, but Ricker Hauer is amazing. Yeah, one of those moments, like one of those weird things, like it was filmed in English but dubbed in Italian. Uh huh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hope and Pain from Japan, premiered in Berlin. It's about a group of students after the World War Two. That's another one that I'm confused why they submitted it when they have so many other options, but we'll... We're going to talk about it here. (laughs) But uh, it's... I was bored watching it. And uh, like uh, like when I get bored, my mind starts wondering and thinking about other things. So I missed a lot of what happened in it when I was watching it. And I only kind of became engaged when the guys from the school start putting up a play. Uh, like a German play or something like that. And yeah, and at the end, I don't know if you've seen uh, Stand By Me. No. Well, at the end of Stand By Me, there's like narration of River Phoenix's character saying like, oh, and this happened to this person and this happened to this person, like to the group of friends. And this movie ends in the same way, but since you don't really care about any of them, you don't. It doesn't have an impact. The last tunnel from Mexico. I couldn't find any summary of this film, so do tell me about it. The last tunnel is about, uh, like a father and son relationship. Like the father is a uh, cons- works in construction, but he doesn't have like an education. He's not an architect or anything, and he always wanted his son to be an architect. So he paid for him to go to the university and become an architect. But they don't really get along well, so the son doesn't want to do that, and it feels like it's mostly just to spite his dad. 
and they but he graduates anyway and they start working on a construction together and then the the son becomes involved with an indigenous woman that's living there and there's like a racism aspect to that because he gets her pregnant and then he runs away and doesn't take care of it and then the, his father takes the girl in and takes care of the baby himself and her so yeah it's not very good i didn't like it ice palace from norway you chatted me about this yeah so, two young girls struggle with their relationship in the 1930s so this movie is very 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 slow and but it's one of my favorites of all the submissions that i saw like the it's very clear three act structure like the first act is the two girls meeting and there's like that's the one that i mentioned to you about girls being about child nudity because there's a scene where the two girls are in the room together and one of them says like oh we should take our clothes off and I saw this movie on YouTube and they cut that scene out so I was like confused because it was like a really weird jump but then I read that it's implied that one of the girls is a lesbian and the other one is uncomfortable so she gets out of the house and runs back and then the second act is the day later because one of the girls doesn't want to go to school because she's embarrassed like the one that told her to take their clothes off and she because it's in Norway and it's very cold and it's snowing and there's a lot of ice and she comes across like this because they're they're like this uh, in the winter like the the waterfalls freeze and these structures of ice form and she goes inside one of them and it's like just 20 minutes of her walking around this ice thing and you see like the reflections of the sunlight and the score is like really uh, uh do you know vangelis the composer that did blade runner and and chariots of fire like, he does, like, very electronic music, like, synth, synthesizer heavy, and the score is very much like that, and it's a very, like, hypnotic experience of watching her walk around this ice palace. And then she freezes to death. <laughs> Did you like it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> is it your favorite from the submissions? Yeah. Is it your favorite from the submission? No, it's not my favorite, but I ah. really liked it. <laughs> the Mouth of the Wolf from Peru. It's about a clash between soldiers and terrorists in a rural village. Before we started, you were, you were going to say something about this, like the New York Times article. Oh, yeah. Uh, there is this one crew member, which is an American, who was very proud of the film that was made. So he made sure that all the proper forms and documents were submitted so that Peru would submit this film to the Oscars. Oh, okay. But they only had three films to choose from from that year. Of the ones that I saw that are from Latin America, this is probably like the best made of them all. And it's like about these soldiers. I didn't get 
there there was like a a civil war in Peru during that time. I didn't really understand what was going on because like at the beginning of the movie, there's this scroll of text that goes down and it goes by so fast that you can't really read anything. So I didn't get what was happening, like why that was happening. But there's like this civil war between the Chiitas, I think it is, something like that. And then the Peruvian people. And it's about the brutality of the police of the of the military. There's like a massacre, like a scene of the military killing people. At... It's not. Uh, it's not very enjoyable. A very enjoyable watch. It's like a commensive almost. Wow. <laughs> it's not that that that. It's not that upsetting, but it's something similar to that. Because it's about this guy. Like, uh, when he first comes, he he has a very idealized view of the military. And then as he sees how awful the commanding officer is, that's killing people just because he's afraid that they will speak. Because he kills some... He's torturing someone to get information out of him. And he kills him. And then to avoid that the other people will tell like the superiors so that people don't find out, he makes the all the soldiers kill like 30 people with shotguns just so that he that they that anyone doesn't find out. I didn't like it very much, but I imagine that for some people that would be good. I mean, I found it. I just don't know if it has subtitles. And this one really got me interested because of that article, which is like, the, the, they were proud of this film. Yeah, and I can see why. It's very well made and well acted. and But it's just not my type of film. It's just cup, not something that I would... Tea. Yeah, it's not my cup of tea. <laughs> All right, next. Commissar from Soviet Union, Silver Bear in Berlin... It was actually made in 1987, but it was banned for 20 years. 67, 67. I'm so sorry. It is about a Red Army commissar who stays with a Jewish family to give birth. Yeah, this is one of the ones that I wanted to see most because of what you mentioned, that it was made in 1967, but the director was banned from filmmaking and they told him that they destroyed the only print of the film that there was available. So, uh, and they only found that they hadn't destroyed it like 20 years later and was released. And it's about a woman commissar. Like she's uh, one of the, uh, an officer from the Red Army and she gets pregnant. So the army sends her to live with a Jewish family uh, until she has her baby and then comes back to the military. And like this, they live in a very small house, this Jewish family, and it's like the husband and the wife and her mother and their six children. And they have to move out of the room to let the woman come live there. So they, and they all sleep in the floor. And I imagine like that's why it was banned because it's kind of critical of the, of the lifestyle in Russia or the Soviet Union at that moment. So that's probably why they banned it. And it's good. 
it it's from it was made in 1967 but it doesn't feel like that it feels very modern it felt even more modern than some of the other films that year because like the the cinematography is very like the high it's very high contrast black and white and there's like scenes that are very pov where like someone is getting slapped and then you see like the camera moving from their point the point of view of the person getting slapped and the score is also very weird. It doesn't feel like something from the 60s. It feels like it was made in 1988. Or maybe the score was done. Maybe, but the, the, still, the other maybe. parts. Yeah. <clears throat> I think we also have like something... I, think, I, I don't know if Time of the Gypsies is the same thing. I think the, the year before, like 1989... In terms of like podcast timeline before <laughs> 1989, there were also submissions that were like they were only released, but they were like 20 years banned. Dictatorships really mess up film. Lounge chair from Switzerland, um, part of the Can Unsettled Regards section. It's about a movie projectionist who thinks of a plan to determine who from his housemates he should marry. And it also stars Kristen Scott Thomas. Kristen Scott Thomas. Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah, Kristen Scott Thomas is the only thing that is noteworthy about this movie. And it's not that she's good, but just the fact that she is in it. Because it's, it's probably the worst of everything that I saw. Oh my gosh. It's about this guy that's like trying to find out if he wants to marry, like who he wants to marry from two of his friends. And they are like both in love with him, but you don't really understand why because he's he, he doesn't look that good. And then he's also not, he doesn't have a great personality. <laughs> and then he makes her, he makes Christian Scatamas hire a private investigator for some reason to tell her of all the affairs that she had that he has it's weird and then she ends up falling in love with the private investigator and marries him and then the other guy the protagonist like stays alone which is what he deserved lastly a short film about love from poland directed by Krzysztof Kislowski it's actually a re-edited version of Decalogue 6, which is an installment of the TV anthology drama Decalogue. It's about um, a young man's favorite pastime is to spy on his neighbor, who is an artist. Yeah, and I also thought that it was like a re-edited version, but from what I understand, they refilmed everything with the same actors. What? Because uh, when he was making the Decalogue, one of the contractual obliga obligations was that he had to make two of them into yeah. films because film is more easy, it's easier to distribute than TV internationally. So he made the Decalogue 5 into a, into a short film about killing and Decalogue 6 into a short film about love. And uh, a short film about love is about this really weird and creepy guy who has like a telescope, but I don't know if that's the right word, to spy on his neighbor that lives across the street from him, on his neighbor, and he sees her have sex and everything. And he's like in love with her, but then she finds out that he's spying on her. Oh, and sometimes he calls her. 
and hangs up the phone. And then she finds out that he's spying on her and they form this weird relationship. It's a very interesting film. And maybe we'll talk later, but it was the right choice to pick this over. I should have about killing, even though it was never going to get nominated anyway, <laughs> because it's very out there for the Academy. Yeah, they can handily handle one of the yeah. <laughs> of the out there choices. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to run down a few others that I think probably, maybe, maybe. Um, Undiscovered Country from Austria or The Distant Land. I don't know. It's about a young pianist who commits suicide and his wife who holds um, his farewell note. The Revolving Doors from Canada. It premiered at Cannes' Uncertified section. It's about a painter who receives a diary from his long-estranged mother. Tango Bar from Puerto Rico. It's screened in Toronto. It's about stars Raul Julia. It's about a tango show owner in Puerto Rico who goes back to Buenos Aires after the fall of the dictatorship. Yasmin from West Germany. It premiered in Berlin Film Festival in Chicago. It's about a 20-year-old Casanova who falls in love with a Turkish woman three years younger. In the Shadow of the Raven from Iceland, it's about a young man who falls in love with the enemy's daughter promised to a son of a bishop to ensure peace in England. This is Google, by the way. So uh, it, it, looks, it looks like a period, and it's very expensive. I think 200 million of the money from Ireland. And it, it looks like a period piece. So I think I found, I found that film on YouTube, but I couldn't see it because it was, first of all, it was dubbed over the original language into Russian, I think, and I, I and it really distracts me, so I didn't watch it. And I think it also didn't have subtitles. But yeah. I tried to yeah. find every submission. Yeah. Thank <laughs> like you. Like everything I didn't watch was because I couldn't find it. Oh my gosh. Oh, anyway. <laughs> the Summer of Avia from Israel. It won Silver Bear in Berlin. It's about a young girl who spends summer with her overprotective, traumatized Holocaust survivor. Mom. Mom? I think, I don't know. So, what's that? Survivor. And then The Ghost of War from Nicaragua. It's about a young dancer who joins the fight against the U.S.-backed Contras. And it's notable for mixing war footage and dance sequences. Um, Hard Times from Portugal. It premiered in Venice. It is an adaptation of the Charles Dickens novel. And My Uncle's Legacy from Yugoslavia. I premiered in Chicago Film Festival. It got a Golden Globe nomination the following year. It's about a stubborn schoolboy who has a powerful uncle. Powerful like in the national bureaucracy kind of powerful. Um, so I apologize for the seven submissions that I did not name. <laughs> because there are only 31 and I read 24. Sorry. Um, all right, so now let's go to the other film. No, wait, before we move on, not like the submission from Canada, The Revolving Doors, was directed by Francis Mankiewicz, who is related to that Mank in Mank. <laughs> I think that his father I... <laughs> was like a, a cousin to the to Joseph Mankiewicz and Herman J. Mankiewicz. But yeah, that's it. Wow. All right. 
lots of things to go through. All right, so now let's go to the other films. This is a quite a rich year for world cinema, even outside of submissions. Let's start with Japan. Let's go Asian this time. Okay. And let's start with the film that I've also seen. Grave of the Fireflies from Japan. It is an... Alright, all so what we're going to mention here are all animes. Um, it's about siblings who struggle to survive during World War II in rural Japan. Yeah, I had seen this one before. Like many years ago. Because when I was in high school, I was like a very into anime. Like shows mostly. And uh, like on on the internet, I read people talking about this movie and how sad it was. And like, if you don't cry watching it, then you don't have a heart and things like that. So I watched it then and it was sad, but I didn't cry really. And then I saw it again. You don't have a heart. I saw it again on Christmas. (laughs) What are you trying to do? And I love this movie. I love like how from the very beginning, like the very first scene is the boy dying. So you know what's gonna happen in the end. So the scenes that follow later, even when it's him just playing with his sister, there's like this thing hanging over the film that you know that this is gonna end terrible. And it makes it like very bittersweet. Like that scene, with the fireflies when they take them inside the house and that's when everything turns to shit (laughs) like it's a very beautiful movie and I like about it is how like the ant could have been a very one note villain but she's just like a real person and you can understand at points where she's coming from because there's this kid that she's really isn't like she doesn't have an obligation to take care of him but he's just there and he's very entitled and then you have like the girl crying every night not letting anyone sleep you can understand how she would be annoyed at them and you and she's not just a monster so yeah what did you think about it I think, um, first of all, with that relationship dynamic, I, I don't know if what's the culture in yours, <laughs> but in, at least in my side of Asian, Japanese, you know, all that, every family member feels like a responsibility. Okay. But I do understand that human frustration because of the scarcity that's happening. Um, did it hurt? I mean, have I ever had? I I'm lucky to have to not having those kind of relatives. Who are like, well, no, 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 your food's different. But it, it's a time of uh desperation. Uh, so understandable. Um, I saw it last week and um, I cried this time. <laughs> I didn't cry. But my heart was sinking the whole time. The moment I saw the protagonist near death, and then one of this uh, guards threw the can, I knew it was a bone right there. And what's a brilliant thing is, like, like I said, I'm really picking my nose. <laughs> is that it already sets up the tragedy. That's why the impact of the scenes feel weightier because of the inevitability. 
And even if they're happy, like I said, you know it's ending and make the most out of it because that's not going to last. It is a supremely crafted film, a war film. It's it's up there with like Schindler's List and um, something else <laughs> I forgot, which was like the, one of the best anti-war films that I've ever seen. Um, I have not seen any of the Japanese films from this year, but I don't know. Maybe they were not that open to anime. I imagine that was the reason. <laughs> but it's so powerful. I might even call this my best film of 1988. I think I would agree. Like either this or Women on the Verge. <laughs> yeah, those two are like there. And the emotional power of this film. I mean, I, we watched it and then the following day it was like, it's really heavy. The following day after watching it. And I watched it at night. So I was really feeling the weight of it. And, you know, it's one of the most, it's one of the most depressing films ever. And like, oh, it's an anime. How how bad can it get? Like, bad. For the people people that always say that animated films are for children, I want them to show this movie to their child to see what they think. (laughs) Because there's a scene, like a scene where they show their mother's corpse. And it has like worms and bugs on her. Oh my gosh, It's yes. very gruesome. And then there's that scene where the two kids are playing on the beach and they stumble across across like a row of dead bodies on the beach lying there. It's very... It's very... Uh, like, it, this is not for kids. Uh, or maybe show it to your kids and maybe they would be like better human beings. Maybe to like, like older know. children. No, four years old. <laughs> they would understand it. Um, I I would want to do an episode of this in a podcast because I I think there's so much to unpack in this one. But that's not the only anime that came out this year. Yeah. Akira from Japan. Akira. Let's uh, talk about, is about a secret my military. neighbor Totoro first. Yeah. All right, then let's go with my neighbor Totoro. It's about um. Me and Satsuki, they move to a house near the hospital so that they could be close to their mother. And then they become friends with Totoro, which is this big creature, rabbit-like yeah. creature. All right. So, like, the two giants of the Studio Ghibli are Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki. And they both had films that came out the same day in Japan. Like, this and Grave of the Firefly came out the same day. And uh, My Neighbor Totoro is a very nice movie to watch. It's just very nice and nothing, there's nothing really high stakes. And what I really like about Miyazaki films is that they never really have villains. Like in something like Spirit of the Way or uh, that there's a witch there and you expect her to be a villain. But at the end, like she, she's not really that bad. And it's more about Shihiro experiencing this weird life. And in the same way, the house moving castle, where there's also a witch, but the witch turns around and becomes an ally later. 
and here in Tot in Totoro, like you at you would ex if this was an uh, an American movie, you would have like the dad of the two girls being uh like strict or not letting them play or when they tell him all the time that oh I saw Totoro last night and we played with him you would expect him to tell them like oh like what are you talking about like that's a fantasy it doesn't exist but the dad is a really nice guy and he just just plays along with them and you never really know if Totoro is real or not or not because they only see him when they're alone and It's just a very nice movie to watch. I believe that because I the with the I think I don't know if the only Hayao Miyazaki film I've seen is no I've seen Mononoke too Mononoke Miyazaki right yeah Mononoke and uh, Spirited Away I don't love them but there's always this feeling of warmth oh yeah. In and in Princess Mononoke, there's the same thing of not having like a clear villain because there's a woman that's like the, yeah. the, taking the steel out of the earth, and you think like, oh, she's awful because she's damaging the earth, but then she really explains, like she, you can see where she's coming from because she's doing this for her people. Yeah. Like yeah, I. Yeah, it's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, with the stories that I've seen from him is like they are, you know, they have the usual like high stakes which with the normal narrative. But yeah, there are there aren't really largely despicable characters that you would hate on. I think everyone is just trying to exist. And his bunch of yeah. life of life, they don't really feel like they have a plot that's driving these people. It's just like people living and existing. And that's what I love about him. And I'm excited for his next movie that's coming out. Yeah, which would qualify for the Oscars. I think so, but I don't know when. It's yeah. not done is yet. It, is it Earwig? Earwig? No, I, sorry, I think. Ah, I forgot. Anyway. Akira from Japan. It's about a secret military project that endangers Neo Tokyo. 2019, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. 2019. Uh, when it turns a biker gang member into a rampaging psychic psychopath, who can only be stopped by two teenagers and a group of psychics. This is another one that I've been wanting to watch for a long time, and I saw it for the first time for this podcast. And uh, it's like one of the most visually stunning movies I've ever seen. Like the animation in it is like probably like the best animation of any movie that I've ever seen. From what I understand, there were like a uh, hundred and sixty thousand frames in this movie. That is like way above average for an animated film. Like the movement is so smooth, and there's like so many explosions and things, and they all look like even better than they would in real life. And there's so many vibrant colors. It's a, like visually, it's amazing. It's like one of the best movies I've seen in, on that level. But on the narrative, it's very, very convoluted because it was based on a manga and the manga artist wrote the script for the movie, but the manga wasn't done yet. Like it was, like it was only halfway through and he knew where it was ending. 
So he took like the beginning of the story and the ending of the story, and then he put them together in a way. So narratively, there's a lot of a lot of threads that just there's a lot of loose ends like Impella, and it. It's a bit jarring, like the transition between the two parts, because things happen very quickly. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to get lost. And even if you are paying attention, you may get lost. So as a narrative, it's not the best, but the visuals are enough to keep you engaged. Which one of these three do you think would have the best chance if they were submitted? Well, I think because Akira was a very, Akira, 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 was a very big hit internationally and it was like the, what prompted because I grew up watching Dragon Ball have you seen Dragon Ball? Yes! I grew also up Dragon watching Ball. Dragon Ball on TV and I watched it every day and when it was over like they played again from the Same. beginning and I watched it like I grew up watching it and like the reason that anime started getting distributed to the west was because of the success of Akira so if it wasn't for that then we maybe wouldn't have gotten to see Dragon Ball and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> I'm feeling maybe grave. Yeah, I think, yeah. Because yeah. it's a World it's War II a film. Holocaust. Well, not the Holocaust, but yeah. All right, so you've talked about how the reader is like, eh, from France. Now let's talk about the films from France. This is a list that you gave. First one, I think, I think the most famous from this one is Chocolat. It premiered at Cannes. It directed by Claire Denis. It's about um, a French woman who befriends a Cameroon native and help in the household. And that's against uh, traditional norms. Yeah, so that's one, that one is Claire Denis' directorial debut. It's her first movie. And uh, it reminded me a lot, a lot of Out of Africa because it's about this white family go- going to Africa and having the Black people there as a background but I think that Chocolat does a better job of showing like the way that the white people mistreated the the natives there Mm. and yeah it's fine it's good I think I actually prefer the reader to that but it's still good yeah I haven't seen this one yet I mean I've only seen the version of Chocolat (laughs) different story Um, I think Claire Denis I mean I've seen white material from her maybe there's this she's grappling with the not not grappling with tackling colonialism in this yeah oh and times sorry if you're into that stuff and maybe this says more about me but there's a scene where a guy is taking a shower and he's yeah. <laughs> I'm straight. Wow. 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 All right. Story of Women from France. This, I have seen half of it because I caught it when they were screening this film in my university for free. Uh, it won Best Actress in Venice. Stars Isabelle Lopez. It's about a woman who... Um, works as an abortionist during World War II to support her family. This should have been their submission. This movie is amazing. 
I love Isabel Huppert in it. And I love how, I love her character in this movie. Because she is, like you think, uh, a, a drama about a housewife during World War II in France. And, and she's struggling. And you think that it's going to be a very heavy movie. But the first hour of this movie is really fun. It's really funny because she uh, she starts performing abortions and at the beginning she she isn't doing it for money she's just helping a a friend of hers that got pregnant and her husband isn't there and she doesn't want the baby so she did it and she's like oh it worked and then she started doing it for money and she meets a prostitute and she rents a room of her house to the prostitute uh, so that she can bring the man in there and the prostitute pays her and she starts having an affair with a with a soldier and she does it like with her husband right there like she know he knows that she's cheating on her and that she's cheating on him and she knows that he knows and she doesn't care and she just do it does it anyway and then in the last 30 minutes because this is a story about a real woman like her character was a real person that was like the first like the only one that got executed for performing abortions and uh, the French government did it because they were still occupied by Germany. And they did it like as a statement of saying like, oh, people, like we have to be moral because we're uh, uh, an occupied country. And they executed her because of that when she, like no one gets executed for abortions. And then it takes like this really feminist in the last 30 minutes after she's caught and she's in jail. And she had like one of my favorite lines when she's like praying and she does the Hail Mary, but she says like, Hail Mary full of shit. (laughs) Rotten is the fruit of your womb. (laughs) I think I remember this. This movie is great. I think I remember the hot soldier. That she had the affair with. Uh, I think I remember that. See, the things that I remember are... (laughs) <laughs> but I'm scared. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I cannot comment on it. But this was eligible in uh, this was eligible for foreign language film this year, but it was released in the United States mm-hmm. in 1989, where it could have been eligible for. Other and that categories. that that really upsets me because that best actress lineup is not very good, and Isabel Huppert is better than all of them. <laughs> she should have won. I've only seen Jessica Tandy and Isabella Johnny mm-hmm. from that year. Like the best, in my opinion, is Michelle Pfeiffer, but I was still give it to Isabel for over her. I'll get to that. <laughs> All right, so two Anya's Varda films. First one is Jane B for Agnes V. Anya's V. Uh, it's about a documentary. Uh, a, a documentary and that's one first yeah so uh i don't remember exactly when it was but like 1983 Agnes varda made a film called vagabond that was very successful and jane birkin saw that jane birkin is charlotte gainsburg's mom and uh, she saw that film and she reached out to Agnes varda and told her that she wanted to work together with her and so they made these two films, like uh, uh, Jane B by Agnes B and Kung Fu Master, like both 
in the same year and they came out together. Like they were very related, so I'll talk about them both together because Kung Fu Master is about a woman played by Jim Birkin who falls in love with a 13-year-old boy who is played by Agnes Barda's son. And then Charlotte Gainsbourg, who is Jane Birkin's son, plays her, her uh, uh, daughter, plays her daughter in the movie as well. And then Jane Birkin's other daughter is also in the movie playing her daughter. <laughs> and it's, uh, and Jane Birkin wrote it herself. And uh, it's a very, if this movie came out, you can only imagine the outrage on Twitter <laughs> because she kisses the boy, Jim Perkin, and they have like, it, it's a romance movie between them both. <laughs> and it's a very strange movie. <laughs> and uh, Jane by Agnes B. I liked it better. I think it's a much better film and it's like a documentary where Jane Birkin talks about her life and like her viewpoint on on fame and stuff and it's intercut by these like vignettes where Jane Birkin plays different characters that aren't related at all to anything. And they're like put in between the sh the scenes of her talking about herself, and it's very interesting watch. I mean, if conservatives are already shitting themselves, <laughs> call me by your name. You can only imagine <laughs> if they found this movie. <laughs> I want to imagine. No, but they would only watch Gone with the Wind. <laughs> And then when they feel bad already, they would watch The Help. They're like, oh, we did good. Anyway, moving on to other countries. The South from Argentina won Best Director at Cannes. It's about a prisoner wandering in the streets of Buenos Aires after being released in the fall of the Argentinian dictatorship. Yeah, after he is released, he finds out that his wife has been cheating on him while he was in jail. Uh, and then there's like this friend of his that's already dead that uh, that they call him El Negro, which is like the black guy. And this imaginary friend of his like takes him back in time in his memory to see how life was th there while he was in jail. And then he has to decide if he wants to go back to his wife or if he wants to stay on his own and leave and it's better than the death so it would have been a better submission but I still didn't really enjoy it that much the same ha thing happened where my man kept wondering and thinking about other things and I missed a lot of what happened Alice from Czechoslovakia it won best feature at the ANSI International Animated Film Festival it is a surrealist version of Alice in Yeah, Wonderland. so this one couldn't have been submitted this year because it wasn't released in Czechoslovakia until 1990, but it was released in America in 1988. So I think it would have been eligible for other categories, but I'm not sure. And it's a really, really strange movie. It's about this girl called Alice. And it's like half... It's a stop-motion animated film, but the girl that plays Alice is like a real girl, and she's in the middle of all these stop-motion puppets. 
and at some points she drinks and eats things that make her into a doll and turn her back into a real girl. It's a very strange movie where she's following this white rabbit that's trying to kill her. <laughs> and they go inside, like, like uh, inside cabinets and inside. A, it's very strange. <laughs> and I liked it. Yeah. Okay. I don't, it, it would have never been nominated, even All if right. it wasn't. <laughs> It's too weird <laughs> for the Academy, but it's good. Thank you. Watch it if that sounds like something that you would enjoy. Avril, La Trinchera del Honor from Dominican Republic. It's uh, yeah, it's story. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, after the dictatorship in the Dominican Republic, the, fir- uh, the, uh, the dictatorship ended when the guy, the dictator called Trujillo, Leonidas Trujillo, he was shot to death. And then that was in 1961 and we had the first normal elections in 1962. And the person who won them was Juan Bosch. And he won, but he was a socialist. And he made it so that people, that the big corporations had a limited amount of land that they could own. And as you can imagine, the rich people didn't like that. So they organized a coup and they threw him out of the power uh, within only seven months of him being president. And in 1965, in April, there was like an uprising here. And I'm not there. (laughs) There was an uprising of people that were fighting to get Juan Bosch back into power. And the documentary is about that war, which would have been won and Juan Bosch would have been put back into power if it wasn't for Lyndon Johnson and the United States sending their troops to the Dominican Republic to control the situation, to make it so that we don't get another Cuba, as they said, because they kept saying like, oh, this is a communist, Thing and they're trying to make another Cuba and uh, Abril La Tranchera de Honor is a documentary about that war. And it's it's not a very good documentary. <laughs> but this story is, it's a great story and it would make for a great movie if someone made it, but the documentary is not good at all. Like it's just archival footage of thing of what was happening. And then there's like narration of the director saying like, oh, this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it gets tiresome really quickly. But if you're interested, I guess, but it, I couldn't find it with subtitles. So I don't know how you would be able to watch it. Here's the thing. It is hypocrisy to say that America loves freedom and democracy it's not that they hate dictatorships they just hate it when it's not their dictatorship yeah because after all of this thing happened they made another election while the military was still in the dominican republic so they had control of all the polls and everything and the person who won was who they wanted to win yeah as coming from a, a third world country, 
I we have witnessed how Americans love to not give true freedom to countries to be what they are. Because they, they always use the keyword that oh, it's a communist country or like communist ideology. So then we have now the license to interfere mm-hmm. and save you guys. It's really hypocritical. And that's, it's, you know, uh, when, when I see, you know, happening in the capital and the siege, like, oh, this is not who we are. Violence, not- <laughs> it is. No, bitch. That has been the language of the American history from from being illegal immigrants to the United States and killing the Native Americans to selling slaves and enslaving people of color to systemic racism to interfering with um, countries just because they don't like their leaders and until now so still like sociopolitical interference violence has been America. Let's just put it in that fucking way. So I am, I am so sick when people say, "Oh, this is not who we are. We are better than this." No, that's who you are. America is born on violence, and it continues to be. If they don't reconcile and admit that fact, they would never move forward because they always say, "Oh, it's just a few bad apples." Like, oh no, that's not really us. Unless you acknowledge that fact that America is really founded on violence, you're not going to change for the better. I mean, if you don't think that America has failed black people for the longest time and like failed people of color from different parts of the world and like interfered in their, in their independence and their right to self-determination, you're just going to sit there and feel good when you have elected a non-Republican. And, oh, we did it. But no, the hard work just starts from there. And it's really hypocritical what is going yeah, on. Yeah, they get very complacent about the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. They celebrate the barest minimum and would not even fight for something better. And I don't know. I might not even go to the United <laughs> States anymore. Here's <laughs> what I've just said. Well, I'm here. But. <laughs> oh no! They're going to look for you. <laughs> You're gonna wait for like uh, two more weeks before this episode is published. Oh no, where is that? Anti American. If I disappear, you first. know what happens. All right, FBI noted. All right, so speaking of America, Damnation from Hungary, directed by Bella Tar. It's about a lonely barfly who falls in love with a married bar singer. Yeah, so this movie is like, I said that Ice Palace was low. This is like lethargic almost. <laughs> and it is very beautiful to look at, like the cinematography. And there are very long shots of just the protagonist sitting on a bar and drinking and thinking about the bar singer. And it's just so slow and it's two hours. And maybe if I saw it again another time, I would enjoy it more because I'm not against low movies, but I have to be in the mood for them. And I wasn't in the mood for it yesterday when I saw it. So, yeah, I would not recommend it if you 
I would not recommend it. But there are a lot of people who really like it because I thought like the top reviews were, were saying like, oh, this is a masterpiece. So mm, judge yourself. <laughs> I like that. This is a masterpiece. Mm. Yeah, that that happens. I mean, I mean, with with slow films, really, you have to be like I said in a mood, and then the story has to be engaging despite yeah, the slowness. Because, I mean, there are films that really work in yeah, slow. Yeah, it's not very engaging at all. Like you said, the plot that he's like in love with this woman, and she's married, and then she like he gets the. The, uh, her husband to go on a job somewhere so he can be alone with her and they have conversations but I couldn't tell you anything that they said because they are so vague what they're talking about it's not mm, I didn't like it a short film about killing from Poland it won jury prize at Cannes Best film at the European Film Awards, and it is the re-edited version of Decalogue 5. It is about a man sentenced to capital punishment after killing a taxi driver. Yes, it's like three storylines. There's one about the guy, the murderer, and he's going about his day and doing chaotic things like throwing a rock from a bridge so that it hits a car. And he also, like, he's in a bath in a public bathroom and there's a guy that makes a pass at him and he, like, punches him and throws him on the floor. And uh, the other is about the taxi driver who is kind of a jerk and he doesn't take uh, people on rides if they're going to, like, nearby places. He only takes people that are going far so that he can get more money. And he also makes passes at young women that don't want to be uh well and then there's a lawyer who's just taken his bar exam uh, who just passed his bar exam and became a lawyer in a firm and then the guy kills the taxi driver and does like the middle point of the film and then the second half is him waiting for his sent to be executed because he's already sentenced, and it's trying to contrast, like, the murder that he committed, which was very, it's very gruesome, because it's not like he just kills him, he takes a rope, and he hangs, and he tries to choke the guy, but he doesn't die that fast, so he takes him out and hits him on the head with, like, a bar or something, and he's still alive after that, so he takes a rock, and he starts hitting him on the head with the rock, it's very, it's very, I can see why they picked a, a short film about love over this because it's a lot more accessible, even though it's just about a stalker. <laughs> and then it's trying to contrast that murder with the very cold and procedural uh, killing that the state commits when they execute him. Because, like, the Decalogue is trying to take like, each one of the Ten Commandments and make a, a film that around it so this one is about thou shalt not kill and a short film about love is that thou shalt not covet like another one another person's woman or something like that but yeah this one is tough the next one is tough i'm so ashamed i haven't seen it yet but he did macho <laughs> dancer from the philippines it just feels bad saying that really <laughs> 
Uh, it premiered in Toronto in 1988. It was released in the Philippines in 1989, but let's go. It's about um, a teenager from the province, a rural area, who was abandoned by his American lover. So then he goes to the city and then works... Uh, as a macho as, dancer. Um, as, a, as a macho dancer with, with um, sprinkles of prostitution and drugs and police corruption and murder around... Um, it's directed by Linda Broca, one of the greatest film directors here in the Philippines. And I haven't seen it, but Ronaldo did. So what do you think? It is that? very gay and it is very horny. <laughs> like there are scenes. They're All like, right. they call them showers that they take in the bar where he works as a macho dancer, where it's just like two guys in their underwear. And they start like rubbing each other with soap. And they start like rubbing against each other and dancing with really sensual music. <laughs> and then they take off their underwear and like lie on top of each other and start humping. <laughs> it's in there in those scenes last like five minutes of just that. And there's like even a scene in the bar where there's like a, a, a row of guys that are sitting like on, a, on chairs on the stage and they're just jerking off and people watching them and you think that it's just gonna be that in the first hour but then it takes a turn where like one of the protagonist's friends has a sister that lived in the in the countryside and then he finds out that she left a few months ago looking for him and she like disappeared and he's trying to look for her. And then she finds that, she, that he finds that she was sold into prostitution and they have her captive there. And then he's trying to get her out of there. And it becomes serious in the second half. But I think that it's like, a, kind of a, it's a smooth transition. Like it doesn't feel forced. And it ends with another shower scene. <laughs> I, I want to thank you for informing me about our films. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Um, something. It was actually well reviewed by Western critics. Uh, in the poster, it says like, like I don't know, some of the best films of the year, something like that. In the poster, the poll quotes are really there. Uh, yeah, and if you see the poster, that's from one of the shower scenes. <laughs> I just this one also front. I just want to say to our listeners that when I talk, when I started talking about Macho Dancer and Ronaldo's going to talk about it, he changed his position in sitting and he was really viscerally <laughs> excited and talking about his film. When he was saying it was very horny and very gay, he was smiling. Like he wants, he wants to talk about this one. Um, but yeah, I think it was really controversial this year in our country because it was critical not only of the Marcos administration, the dictatorship that fell. But also of the Aquino administration that was already in power at the time, so it was like an equal opportunity offender, and um, <laughs> didn't like it. Yeah, and um, from what I read, because there's a scene where someone kills a cop, and he's not punished for it, and from what I read, that was like a big deal. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not gonna talk about cops in my country, but. Uh... Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's available. Um, that's one of the f- non-Filipino moviegoers. So 
if you if you catch that. I mean, Linda Brock's filmography, he has done one of the greatest, well, some of the greatest films in my country, and uh, he's only been submitted once, and uh, that's appalling, huh? It was in nineteen eighty five. My country. I'm interested. In but it was a very bad. It has a very bad print on the internet, and I think that was actually banned for a while. So I didn't know how it was eligible. But anyway, it was nineteen eighties. Um, I'm just gonna run down two films from Spain, because I think Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown is the unimpeachable, and being Spain submission, okay. but. This one would not have surprised me. El Dorado from Spain. It premiered at Cannes. It was directed by Carlos Saura. Um, Carlos Saura was submitted five times by Spain and was nominated twice. And he got a third nomination when he was representing Argentina. And it is about the expedition down the Amazon and the Orinoco rivers in the 1560 by Spanish soldiers. So it feels like, you know, Feels like something that they might have gone with at the time. Period piece from a director that they submit multiple times and has nominated for three times. It feels like something they would go to. I mean, especially with Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown being quite like not the Academy's type. This makes sense as an alternative. Yeah. It's very unconventional. And then Lights and Shadows from Spain. It premiered in Venice. It is in Catalan. It is about a child who enters the time of Felipe IV. So the picture Les Meninas from Velázquez. Um, I don't know if this is the same Felipe, but actually the King Felipe is where the name Philippines comes from because we are owned by King Philip. So even our name is a signifier of our... Anyway, just a lot of angst right now because I haven't seen any of these films. Even Macho Dancer, goodness. Um, all right, so this has turned out to be longer than Pella the Conqueror, this episode. Um, I would like to ask you now, do you think Pella the Conqueror is a deserving winner of this category? No. Okay. Um... It's a good movie, but compared to the competition, it's not even close. <laughs> I don't mind it. Uh, yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's certainly in their wheelhouse. Uh, and there's this Max Wonsido performance that's just like, you know. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see. Manifesting the Max Wonsido Oscar energy to Steven Yeun. Minari. Or at least... Give him an honorary. Yeah. I mean, Max Monsero. Yeah. I mean, Christopher Plummer already had one, so. There. And wait, does Liv Ullman have an honorary Oscar? I don't think so, but don't count me, don't quote me on that. Because if she doesn't, that's a travesty. Yep. All right. So we should do like um, Liv Ullman. Gong Li, <laughs> like the great. I mean, Gong Li was worse because she wasn't even nominated once. Like, Carmen Maura too. Carmen Maura, yeah, we owe a lot of women. Anyway, all right. So, 
let's rank the nominees. I feel like I already know your ranking, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What's your number five? Hanasen. My number five is also Hanasen. But I think, anyway. Number four. Number four is actually Tele the Conqueror. Wow! <laughs> yeah. My number four is the music teacher. My number three is the music teacher. I think that, yes, like, I think, I just think it's more enjoyable than Pella. My number three is Pella, the Conqueror. You're number two and number one. Okay. Number two is Salam Bombay. And number one, and it's not even close, it's Woman on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. We are so boring. We have the same ranking. <laughs> um, almost. Yeah, almost. I would ask you this because we've seen a lot of films from this year. Women on the Virgin of a Nervous Breakdown is your winner from the five. Adding yes. the other submissions, would it still be your number one? Yes, and I even made a list of all the submissions that I saw of like what I would have nominated from what I've seen. All right, let's hear that. Let's hear that. And I have Women on the, on the Verge. Okay, I have Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown winning. Then in second place, a short film about love. Uh, in third place, I have One Way Ticket because I'm biased. <laughs> and in fourth place, I have Ice Palace from Norway. And in fifth place, Red Sorghum from China. I love this. And that's a very quick mention. I have in sixth place, I put Salam Bay, which is really good, but just missed. I love this. You've seen more films than the Academy members did <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Should be an honorary member. Um, <laughs> going with the films not submitted, uh, is Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown still your number one? I think so, but it's really close with Grave of the Fireflies. And Story of Women is also very close up there. Yeah, I am on the same page as you. It's really close for me, those who I need to see Story of Women in full. <laughs> um, but those two really represent the best of what is outside the 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 dominating way of storytelling that Hollywood has put on, you know, this the films that have this air of self seriousness, clean structure, you know, and those two films just throw it all away. You have this really heightened drama, comedy, action, sex. It's an Almodovar film. Let's go with that. And then you have this animated film that is one of the most heart-crushing things you will ever see. It just goes to show that there's so much exciting work outside of what a lot of people are watching just because they're Hollywood and they're the dominating cultural and political way of telling stories all over the world. There's so much more exciting stuff outside. And the, even the term outside is like contentious. Like, what, what, why are we, you know? There's so much more exciting things in the world. Um, 
Renata, thank you so much for joining me in this episode. I, again, want to thank you for watching those films. It's, it really fills my heart. But yeah, thank you so much for watching these films and for being on this show. Uh, we've been talking a lot for months now, but this is the, the, the perfect uh, year that we got together. Can you tell again our listeners where can they find you on the internet? Uh, well, before that, I wanted to thank you for inviting me because like what I watch most of the time are just like American movies. So it was like a nice change of pace to watch more international things. It's a palate cleanser, for right? For this month. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on Twitter at rsantana, which is my other last name. I'm Ronaldo Sosa Santana. Uh, 2024. <laughs> anyway... Um, yeah, I, I'm so sorry if for our listeners, if you think this episode is going to be too long, we, I mean, we just talk a lot for, we talk about everything, you know, not on, on a podcast episode. I forgot that we're recording. Oh. How long have we been talking? We're nearing. Wait, we're going to 10. We're nearing four. Five. We're four, uh, over four hours. Oh my gosh. No, no, no. Anyway, so. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana. You can find this podcast at One Inch Barrier. This podcast is everywhere. Um, yeah, come uh, on. And the bonus episodes would start on Sunday. Uh, really exciting. Um, please support this podcast on Patreon. It's a lot of stuff going on. And um, yeah, so again, this is a goodbye for now. And together, let us break the One Inch Barrier. <laughs>